Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, comrades and friends. Alexander von Sternberg here after a little bit more of a delay than I would like, which we'll get into in a bit. But before we continue, I want to hand the mic over to some fine people over at the That Was Genius podcast. Before I continue this shout-out, I'll let them do the talking. All right, here we go. Hello and welcome to That Was Genius. My name's Sam. And my name's Tom. And we are two friends from university who now live on completely the opposite sides of the world, but are still united through a love of history and stupid accents and silly jokes. (laughs) Oh yes. To be honest, we mentioned history first, but it really does come a very distant third. (laughs) That Was Genius is a history podcast in which... Tom and I exchange stories on a theme each week. We decide the theme a week beforehand, but everything else that happens is a surprise. Hence the stupid jokes and the bad accents. So, what can you expect from That Was Genius? Well, we discuss all kinds of things. Erogenous garden gnomes who somehow became classical gods. (laughs) Yep. Thou who wickedly designest and scarce forbearest from robbing my garden, shall be sodomised with my twelve-inch phallus. But if so severe and unpleasant punishment shall not avail, I will strike higher. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, this tiny garden gnome (laughs) overlooks a garden and just sexually assaults anyone who comes anywhere near. And anyone who comes anywhere near, even if they're not looking to steal anything, he just stares at them and says, I'm going to fuck you if you come any closer. <laughs> you don't want to know what I'm going to do to you. Also, when he says, I'll go higher, does that mean he's just going to go more than 12 inches or does that mean he's going to dick slap you in the face? <laughs> he's going to get again, teabagged again, by Sam. an angry gnome. <laughs> you probably think you're being vulgar and silly. Mm, wait... And Mexican generals with no legs. <laughs> Good choice. I'm going to put it out there. Mexico has a slightly difficult history. <laughs> oh, my Lord. But it doesn't end there, Tom, because in 1847, Santa Ana was having lunch during the Battle of Cerro Gordo during the US-Mexican War when American troops surprised him. With an extra leg? <laughs> well, well <laughs> he, he ran away being as he was no, not he actually a very good no, general. He <laughs> Sam, he cannot run away. <laughs> it's not physically possible. Shit, the sources don't add up. <laughs> okay. He Correction. He away on his one <laughs> Correction. American troops surprised him and he hopped off. You are in fact correct, Tom, because the soldiers who'd surprised him captured his two false legs. <laughs> One of which, one of which was paraded around American country fairs as a freak show, and people would pay, people would pay a cent or a dime to see it. The other one, Tom, the other of his legs was used as a baseball bat. <laughs> oh, I think that's Tom's favourite from the vaults. <laughs> So, if you think That Was Genius is up your street... Oh, I say, I bet it is. Up your alley. Do subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. We have new episodes every Wednesday night slash Thursday morning, depending on where you are in the world. So do give us a follow, give us a like, and if you like what you hear, tune in again.
I wanted to give that little bit of an intro earlier because it might have been a little bit jarring to hear something so, frankly, charming and very British. And honestly, it <laughs> considering this show, History Impossible, and considering where it's been and where it's going, especially with this episode, we we might consider this like a good breath of fresh air, a light breath of fresh air before things get dark. But anyway, like I was saying, that was the That Was Genius podcast. Uh, they got one of the hosts, Sam, got in touch with me via email, and we agreed to do a sort of cross-promotional thing, and I just, you know, I love their work. I mean, when he emailed me about this whole thing and I started listening to the podcast, I mean, I just... I started laughing at the gym. Thank you again, guys. I mean, that, well, frankly, Toilet Paper of the Ancients, uh, that alone, that title is great, but listening to that episode really got me. Or, he's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty serial killer. See, that's like, that's good stuff. I wish I could be that naturally funny, or that naturally charming, or just be able to lighten the hell up. I'm sure some of you probably, you know, are hoping that. But anyway... You guys should really check out the That Was Genius podcast over on, well, Apple Podcasts, of course, or really anywhere that you like to listen to your podcast. It's available, and it's totally worth your time and a great way to lighten the load after listening to something that comes out of my mouth. Anyway, let me uh, take care of a little housekeeping before we get into this next episode of History Impossible. As always, I want to give... A very thankful shout-out to Elias Barota, supporter of History Impossible at the producer level and host of the Kill the Judge podcast. Thank you so much, Elias, for your support. You help me keep the lights on with this show, and I very much appreciate it. In addition, I have my first official correction that I'd like to issue about a previous episode— This is actually regarding the previous episode of History Impossible, The American Executioners. Specifically, I was notified by a very kind listener, Yuri Morantz, awesome listener all the way in uh, Israel, actually, as it happens. I think he's in Israel. I know he's Israeli, but I don't know if he—I think he lives there. Yuri, you can correct me on that later. But the point is, he let me know something very important that I I think I must have either gotten it—well, I got it wrong by omission. And by that, I mean I— spoke of how the gas chambers at Dachau were used. I essentially framed it as they were used. Apparently, and I did check into this for for a good while, and the funny thing is, it's not funny but because it's about Dachau, but as it turns out, agreement on whether or not the gas chambers at Dachau were ever used is not universal. There are some scholars who think they were, there are some who don't. This was not an agreed-upon fact, and I presented it as such. Thank you very much to Yuri Morantz for pointing that out to me. Very much appreciate any constructive feedback like that, and great correspondence as well. So feel free to email me at historyimpossible at gmail.com to let me know if I missed anything in any of my previous episodes. Thank you again. Now, on with the show proper. The show proper being... Well, the uh, 2019 finale of History Impossible. This is the last episode of 2019, and it honestly got a little bigger than I expected. And this threequel of my World War II trilogy is taking us to the other side of the world, this time to the Pacific Theater of the Second World War. And in this particular tale, we're, we're going to look at the fall of Singapore and what entailed after that, but... 
we're going back to basics in a way in that we're going to be focusing on a central character. And consider this my fair warning that I like to give, especially with these last couple of episodes. This one gets heavy, but they kind of all do at this point. I think it's become pretty clear. So, without further ado, let's get into some impossible history. Permit me to tell you what you would have seen and heard. It will not be pleasant listening. If you're at lunch, or if you have no appetite, now is a good time to switch off the radio. An ancestor of mine maintained that if you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. The European Russian found the outrot of the Juden of the Europas. I wish I could say tonight that a lasting peace is inside. I don't see any American dream, I see an American nightmare. Some say the world will end in fire, some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. But if it had to perish twice, I think I know enough of hate to say that for destruction, ice is also great and would suffice. This is History Impossible. I want to open with an admission. I had a lot of trouble coming up with a good story to introduce the theme of this episode's overall narrative. I wanted it to be just right, and there are a lot of applicable stories out there throughout history and within the present. There was a story from the Vietnam War that I liked about a woman named Kim Phuc, a Vietnamese citizen whose entire village was scorched out of existence by American pilots. There was also this story of six Amish girls in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, who were executed by a mass shooter before he turned the gun on himself. There was also even the heavier, much heavier story, if that's possible, of Amy Beale, an American Fulbright scholar and anti-apartheid activist working in Cape Town, South Africa, who was, in... One of the cruelest twists of irony imaginable, murdered by four black men while a surrounding mob screamed anti-white slurs at her as she was hacked and stoned to death. And there was the story of Ava Moses Kaur, a Jewish woman upon whom experiments were conducted by Dr. Hans Munich under the supervision of Dr. Josef Mengele at Auschwitz, resulting in the suffering and continued health problems of her identical twin, Miriam. But perhaps with the purpose of staying on brand by pulling you in with today's headlines, I decided to go with a much more recent story. If you follow the news, you probably have heard the name Amber Geiger, and you might even know the full story of what happened between her and Botham Jean, the man who ultimately would become her victim. But for those of you who weren't cued into this tragic story... Let me fill you in on the basics and where the story has ended up as of this recording in December 2019. Amber Geiger, a woman about my age, was a police officer in Dallas, Texas with five years under her belt. Not quite a rookie, but not quite a veteran either. 
Arriving home on the night of September 6, 2018, an intoxicated or exhausted Amber, depending on what testimony and evidence you believe, she arrived, mistaking the fourth floor of her apartment building for the third. Since the building had identical floor plans on those floors, Amber arrived at the door of what she believed was her apartment. It was ajar, according to her testimony, or at least unlocked. Opening the door, she saw Botham, a 26-year-old man, sitting in his own apartment. Geiger claimed that she told him to show his hands, but the evidence suggested that she had just plugged him with a shot to the chest, which eventually would kill him. When she called 911 after the shooting, a dazed and confused Amber said, quote, I thought it was my apartment, unquote. Regardless of what she thought, she had opened the door to a private citizen's home and murdered him inside of it. The racial element of the story, with Botham being black and Amber being white and a police officer to boot, only made the story and, of course, the emotions running through it all the more volatile. A year went by, and on October 1st, 2019, the jury found Amber guilty of murder. Through tears, Amber herself would admit that she had taken an innocent person's life and that she was sorry. She and the defense team would continue to play up the fear angle while the prosecution and her Twitter detractors would continue to play up the racism angle. The truth was that no one knew, and no one will probably ever know, why she did what she did. At least, not until we develop the ability to read minds. We can speculate and defend and what if all we want, but it doesn't matter. Botham was one year dead and remains dead, and Amber was and remains guilty of murdering him. And there was a family that needed closure of some kind. Allison Jean, Botham's mother, had already delivered her own impact statement before the sentencing in which she said her life had not been the same since her son was murdered, describing how she hasn't been able to work or sleep or eat without difficulty. Botham's father, Bertram Jean, had, through tears, described how his family was indeed shattered, saying the following, quote, It hurts me every day. How could we just have lost Botham, such a sweet boy? He tried his best to live a good, honest life. He loved God. He loved everyone. How could this happen to him? My family is brokenhearted. Unquote. This wrenching testimony only fueled the anger being expressed outside the courtroom by the protesters once they were made aware of it, only amplified even further when Amber Geiger was only sentenced to 10 years rather than the prosecution's proposed 29. But on the day of Amber Geiger's sentencing, Botham's younger brother Brant's victim impact statement was given. And things took a different turn. Not only did Brandt say, through choked-back tears, that he loved Amber Geiger as a person and that he didn't wish anything bad upon her, but that he forgave her. But in some ways, the, the most shocking part was in this clip I want to play for you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
In case you couldn't tell from the audio, after being granted his request to hug Amber, Brandt determinedly, and honestly, I can't imagine how he was feeling in those three or four seconds it took for him to leave the witness box and reach Amber, he walked over to her and embraced her. You can't tell what he's saying in her ear, but it clearly was something powerful, and that's when Amber's sobs start ringing out. The embrace was repeatedly broken and restarted a few times, and Amber said something in Brant's ear that you can't pick out either. But in short, they shared a moment together that no one else but them could know, at least in that moment. And I'm unsure if it's come out what was said between them. I'd, I'd actually just prefer not to know. But the question comes up. Was this real forgiveness? Was it sincere or just a way to cope? I don't know. Depends on your level of cynicism about this sort of thing, I guess. But I just don't know. It certainly was an emotional moment. No one can deny that, regardless of cynicism, especially given what happened next. If you followed this story, you know what happened next, and you likely have an opinion on this scene. Because everybody seemingly had an opinion on this scene and the notion of forgiveness itself. The responses by Botham's family, the only truly relevant responses in my opinion, were largely supportive. Their father, Bertram, said that while he still, understandably in my view, wished for a stiffer sentence on Amber Geiger, he also agreed with his other son's impulse to forgive. And Botham and Brandt's sister, Alyssa Charles Findlay, said that while she respected those who disagreed, she still admired her younger brother for being able to get to a place where she prays to get to every day. And while I firmly believe it's really only up to the Jean family whether or not to forgive or not forgive their son's killer, the rest of the world concerned with the story had their own takes. Some, mostly Christian-oriented papers, championed Brand's act as an example to which we should all strive. Some are more sober, saying things like, you know, quote-unquote, I'm going to take my time for giving Amber Geiger. But there was some pretty fierce criticism of the action and even a bit of possibly understandable cynicism with rhetorical questions about where forgiveness was possible when injustice still existed and hot takes calling forgiveness a delusion, quote-unquote, as well as a Washington Post headline saying, quote, White Christians do not cheapen the hug and message of forgiveness by Botham Jean's brother, unquote. Twitter was being Twitter and was abuzz with takes from all sides of the debate. There was no agreement, though, on the nature of what happened in that courtroom. But it certainly was a powerful moment. To bring this all back around, as you will now probably see and probably have guessed... What ties the story of Botham Jean's murder by Amber Geiger to the horrible stories I mentioned in passing earlier is simple. The act of forgiveness. Kim Fook personally forgave the American pilot who bombed her village and killed her friends, neighbors, and family. The parents of the Amish girls in Nickel Mines posthumously forgave the man who had murdered their daughters. Amy Beale's parents not only forgave the four men who killed their girl, with her father even shaking hands with Amy's killers, 
but they established an anti-violence and youth empowerment foundation named after their daughter and were present when Nelson Mandela dedicated his 1998 Congressional Gold Medal in Amy's memory. And even Ava Moses Kaur, who actually died earlier this year in 2019, forgave not just Dr. Munich for his evil treatment of her and her twin sister, but even forgave probably one of the greatest monsters in human history, Dr. Josef Mengele. And as we just saw, Brant Jean embraced his brother's killer in court and wept with her, forgiving her for her unthinkable crime. I'll be honest, I don't fully understand it. And I'm sure many of you don't either. In many of these cases, Botham Jean's included especially, I can see only my own blinding rage within my mind's eye putting myself in the moccasins of those people who suffered. And yet, here those stories are, where resentment, racism, hatred, and even violence could have festered, and the desire to heal and, yes, forgive, prevailed. And like I said, I don't fully understand it, and I'm sure many of you don't either. And that's why true, earnest forgiveness doesn't happen very often. That's why it can feel like a miracle when it does. And when it doesn't and vengeance is prioritized, we all kind of nod and accept it, if not outright celebrate it. It reminds us of our own impulses and seemingly pointless difficulty of forgiving evil done to us and those we love. This is a lot of presumption, I admit. So let's place ourselves in the moccasins of someone else. Let's pretend that we've not only been humiliated with the defeat at the hands of an invading enemy, but that we've been conscripted by this enemy, starved, beaten, and forced into slave labor, then beaten again and again, and then hauled into a dark room where you're constantly berated, screamed at, then hauled back outside and tortured endlessly, hour after hour after hour, with no end in sight. And when it's finally over... Your body is broken, and you limp your way home, only to realize that day in, day out, your spirit has even become more destroyed. You wake up every night, screaming. You end up doubled over on the floor, fetal, the pain caused by this trauma working its way through your body, leaving you with only the energy to weep and wait for it to all go away. And then you discover that the man who did this to you, who facilitated your suffering, is still alive. And you know where he is. What would you do? That's the question, isn't it? What would you do?
August of 2008, writer and journalist Christopher Hitchens penned one of his most famous and arguably one of his best articles for Vanity Fair called Believe Me, It's Torture. In the article, he described how he had submitted himself to the whims of American Special Forces operators to see what it was like to be, as many Al-Qaeda and suspected affiliates had been before him, subjected to the act of waterboarding. It's easy to have short-term memory about something that largely seems to be a pretty closed case as of 2019, whether or not waterboarding is torture. But back in the Audis, first half I was in high school, second half I was in college, this was still a real debate, a very real debate. Or at least the debate was whether or not it was a big deal if this kind of torture was used on one person to save the lives of thousands, if not millions of others, which was a popular thought experiment at the time, the ticking time bomb thought experiment that you've probably heard of before. Or the debate was if it was even effective at extracting information at all, probably one of the more classic central arguments regarding torture in general. Regardless... The capital C conversation at the time was about torture. I actually remember my alma mater faced a bit of a controversy when they hired attorney John Yu, the man who drafted the infamous torture memo that essentially defended quote-unquote enhanced interrogation techniques. I couldn't resist, and I actually ended up writing in to the University of Minnesota newspaper saying, look, in typical, probably first-time, contrarian douchebag fashion— Hey, listen, if this guy can convincingly defend torture, he should probably be teaching law students how to practice law. Now, my proto-contrarianism from my college days aside, you can see how this was indeed a hot-button issue back then. And Hitchens being Hitchens, he decided that the best way to comment on this capital C conversation I mentioned was to subject himself to a controlled simulation of exactly what kind of thing captured jihadists like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed allegedly went through at the hands of American specialists. A whopping two minutes, though Hitchens' torturers claimed that, quote, Mohammed's interrogators only washed his damn face before he babbled, unquote. It's impossible to say, though I'm inclined to agree with the, I cringe saying this, but with the experts on this. There's actually a video of the entire stunt uploaded to YouTube by Vanity Fair, so you can watch it for yourself. But as always, Hitchens' verbal descriptions are far better at doing this experiment, this immersive experience, perhaps, the horrifying justice it deserves. He describes his building nervousness the night before, especially after signing the release form. He describes the simulation beginning before anyone said anything about water, with his Confederates, Special Forces members stationed in North Carolina, actually going to the trouble of cuffing his wrists to his belt and throwing a black hood over his head. The exact same kind of treatment you see being given terror suspects in all the terrorism-centered thrillers that were coming out at around that time. He describes being transported to a strange building in the middle of the North Carolina woods, shoved into a room with the bag still over his head and, quote, New Age Techno Disco, unquote, pumping loudly through speakers all over the place. Though it might have just been a powerful boombox, it's hard to say. He describes getting swiftly strapped to an inclined board so that his head rested below his heart, which is considered best practice with these sorts of procedures regardless of the board's incline. Head below the heart. 
Seeming to want to have us along for the ride, he gives some brief reflections on his own fears of drowning and being unable to breathe while making sure to give a patented Orwell reference, specifically Room 101, the worst room in the world from 1984, before all of a sudden getting into the crucial, terrifying main point of the sensation of torture with the use of water and a board that he made sure to repeat in every subsequent interview on the subject. Quote, You may have read by now the official lie about this treatment, which is that it simulates the feeling of drowning. This is not the case. You feel that you are drowning because you are drowning, or rather being drowned, albeit slowly and under controlled conditions and at the mercy, or otherwise, of those who are applying the pressure. The board is the instrument, not the method. You are not being boarded. You are being watered. This was very rapidly brought home to me when, on top of the hood, which still admitted a few flashes of random and worrying strobe light into my vision, three layers of enveloping towel were added. In this pregnant darkness, head downward, I waited for a while until I abruptly felt a slow cascade of water going up my nose. Determined to resist, if only for the honor of my Navy ancestors who had so often been in peril on the sea, I held my breath for a while and then had to exhale and, as you might expect, inhale in turn. The inhalation brought the damp cloth tight against my nostrils, as if a huge, wet paw had been suddenly and annihilatingly clamped over my face. Unable to determine whether I was breathing in or out, and flooded more with sheer panic than with mere water, I triggered the prearranged signal and felt the unbelievable relief of being pulled upright and having the soaking and stifling layers pulled off me. I find I don't want to tell you how little time I lasted. Unquote. Not to be undone by what was ultimately only a few seconds, Hitchens opted to go for a second round to ensure it just wasn't first-time, virginal jitters. Quote, An interval was ordered, and I felt the mask come down again, stealing myself to remember what it had been like the last time, and to learn from the previous panic attack, I fought down the first and some of the second wave of nausea and terror but soon found that I was an abject prisoner of my gag reflex. The interrogators would hardly have had time to ask me any questions, and I knew that I would quite readily have agreed to supply any answer. As if detecting my misery and shame, one of my interrogators comfortingly said, any time is a long time when you're breathing water. I could have hugged him for saying so. And just then, I was hit with a ghastly sense of the sadomasochistic dimension that underlies the relationship between the torturer and the tortured. I apply the Abraham Lincoln test for moral casuistry. If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong. Well then, if waterboarding does not constitute torture, then there is no such thing as torture. Unquote. Here's the important thing to remember. Hitchens had volunteered to do this. Everyone else in history who has experienced their faces being watered on an inclined board has, shall we say, not been so lucky. What Hitchens put himself through is just the newest and arguably most recognizable form of torture, but as most of us know, especially if we're fans of Dan Carlin's epic four-and-a-half-hour episode that examines the history of torture as entertainment, appropriately called painfotainment, most of us know that torture is as old as time. It's the timeless expression of human cruelty. And even though we have witnessed more advanced mammals in the animal kingdom like chimps and even dolphins engage in what we could 
reasonably call torturous behavior against their fellow creatures. Hell, even cats seem to torture their prey before finally killing it. I've seen it happen plenty of times in my apartment. But there's something eerily human about the sheer number of creative ways to inflict pain on one another that have developed over the millennia of human civilization. After all, humans have the greatest capacity for creativity in the animal kingdom. I don't think there's any controversy in saying that. So how could that creative impulse not make its way into the realm of deliberately causing suffering on someone else? As a form of torture, waterboarding is the logical conclusion of all of this. It's profoundly efficient and straightforward. It requires minimal tools and gets at one of the most primal fears all land mammals have, the fear of drowning. Technically, even water mammals have a fear of drowning, though they're obviously adapted to it, but they can still drown. But in some ways, waterboarding is a refinement of the techniques developed over thousands of years, likely beginning with deliberate bone-breaking by proto-humans simply to prolong the suffering of their enemies, before moving on to a more creative extension of that with the rack in antiquity, in which people's limbs were literally ripped from their sockets, seeming to be lingering in the imaginations of Persian, Chinese, and European executioners alike, there was vertical sawing torture, beginning between the legs of a person suspended upside down by their ankles. Adding some religious symbolism, the ancient Greeks perfected the ritualistic torture of its criminals by throwing them into the brazen bull, which was a metal statue of a bull heated with the victim inside. Obviously, the creative impulse reigned in the executioner's chambers in the Middle Ages, but it seemed crude with things like the Judas Cradle, which essentially was a pyramid on a chair that the victim was forced to sit on. Being eaten alive by insects or rats was never out of the question, with the former involving milk, honey, and a log in which the victim was trapped until taken by septic shock or gangrene, and the latter being the scene you wish you forgot from the second season of Game of Thrones. And who could forget good old crucifixion, which is actually a lot worse than most people imagine, if only for the excruciating pain it caused from both the suspension and the starvation. But torture as a method of information extraction became a much, much more normalized thing during the Spanish Inquisition. Not wanting to be outdone by ancient cultures, we got things like the spike-filled coffin, the Iron Maiden, the throat and chest-piercing heretic's fork, and the choke pair reserved for the orifices of homosexuals and women. These methods, as well as the ones that are used today, were all designed, and are all designed, for maximizing not just pain, but the fear of pain. Because what ultimately broke and breaks most people isn't the pain itself, but the imagination and memory of it. The psychological aspect of torture, in some ways, is the cruelest part of all. Because when it wasn't simply a cruel form of execution, the point of torture was always and remains the same, to thoroughly break one human being to the will of another human being, to enslave them at their core. That is what Hitchens was talking about when he mentioned the sadomasochistic aspect of torture. Whether you're a woman being tortured by the Spaniards in the Inquisition for being a witch or a suspected Islamic terrorist having water poured into your nostrils and down your throat, you come to be grateful and even love your torturer for stopping 
the pain, for stopping the suffering. They're inflicting unbelievable pain and terror on you, but they've made it stop. You're fine now, and you're fine because they made it so. How can you possibly repay them? Anything, Master. Say the word, and I'll do anything. I'll say anything. And in case you haven't figured it out, that's the point. If it wasn't already clear from comments I've made in earlier episodes, I'm going to completely out myself here as a bit of a nerd, but specifically in this case as a Star Trek nerd, especially of the show I was essentially raised on, The Next Generation. This is only relevant because one of the best episodes in the series, probably even the best episode in the series, depending on who you ask, is called Chain of Command. It's a two-parter, and the plot of it doesn't really matter. But by the second part of the show, our main character, Captain Picard, played by Patrick Stewart, has been caught by the Cardassians, a militaristic alien race and longtime antagonist in Star Trek lore and basically stand-ins for the Nazis. During the A-plot of the episode, Picard is subjected to torture, both physical and psychological, by the episode's primary antagonist, played by the always-excellent David Warner, who strips him of his clothes, suspends him by the arms for a few days, starves him until he forces himself to eat a live, fertilized alien egg, and, most importantly, attempts to break him 1984-style by trying to convince him that there are five bright lights shining on him, when, in fact, there are only four as he tortures him with a futuristic neurological implant that ignites Picard's pain receptors. Picard never breaks and even delivers an epic, defiant scream of, There are four lights! when he uh, is finally freed from captivity at the end of the episode. But there's a point at the very end when he's speaking to the ship's counselor that delivers the hammer blow, really of all hammer blows, when it comes to getting at the root of torture. Quote, At the end, he gave me a choice between a life of comfort or more torture. All I had to do was to say that I could see five lights when, in fact, there were only four. I didn't say it. No. No. But I was going to. I would have told him anything. Anything at all. But more than that, I believe that I could see five lights. Unquote. During the Second World War, the use of torture was relatively rare in the European theater, at least between the major powers. There were countless barbarisms committed by the Nazis, and there were even several accounts of torture committed by both the Allies and Axis powers as a method of information extraction. But aside from garden variety, atrocity, it was more of what we could call a bug in the system. Or perhaps a less used app, a feature, but one that wasn't really used all that often. Or at least it wasn't used as often as on the other side of the globe. In the Pacific theater of World War II, torture, as well as corporal punishment, was a feature, and most definitely not a bug. That much can be said with certainty. And there are verifiable accounts of Allied atrocities committed against the Japanese forces, including torture, though captured Japanese personnel typically resulted in summary execution, sometimes followed by deliberate and, frankly, disgusting body mutilation. Dan Carlin has somewhat covered this darker aspect of the Pacific theater in his Supernova in the East series, but you can see it for yourself in probably 
the most chilling magazine cover of all time, from the May 22nd, 1944 issue of Life magazine. There's a picture of a young woman named Natalie Nickerson, 20 years old, staring in a weird sort of awe at a skull. According to the reporters of Life magazine, who made this their picture of the week, Natalie's boyfriend, quote, a big handsome Navy lieutenant, unquote, had promised her a Jap. In May of 1944, she received a skull in the mail, with her boyfriend and 13 of his friends' names inscribed on it, along with the message, quote, This is a good Jap, a dead one, picked up on the New Guinea beach, unquote. Natalie's boyfriend, like many other American servicemen, had either found a dead Japanese soldier or killed him themselves, beheaded the corpse, tossed the bloody head into a pot, boiled the flesh off the skull, and sent it to his girlfriend back in the United States as a gift. While it's certainly possible Natalie appreciated the gift only as a sort of weird politeness and was secretly disgusted by it, the fact that she named the skull Tojo and did the photo shoot with Life magazine at all suggests otherwise. However, this is not to suggest that the brutality and literal dehumanization committed in the Pacific Theater was a one-sided affair by the evil pro-colonialist Americans. Far from it. In fact, I, I want to make it clear that the Japanese Empire during the Second World War, they were most certainly the bad guys, on the level of the Nazis, and sometimes even managing to surpass them, at least in terms of sheer barbarism and brutality. This might seem obvious, but it does need to be said. It's not that the Japanese were more evil than the Germans, by the way. That's a pointless exercise and does the victims of either regime a disservice. But as Dan Carlin has said many times in his Pacific Theater series, the Japanese are like everyone else, only more so. Unfortunately, for the easily discomfited, usually hyper-lefty or decolonialization-oriented historical revisionists out there, this applies to abject human cruelty. If we're going to be honest about history, which is the most important thing, if you ask me, we need to call a spade a spade and not be Eurocentric about accomplishments or atrocities. At the end of the day, the Japanese spade during this period in history is about as vile and evil as humanity gets. They were racist and supremacist, on a level matched only by the Nazis, seeing the Chinese, Koreans, and other Southeast Asian cultures they conquered as subhuman, and anyone who even attempts to suggest or allude otherwise is likely trying to signal a misguided sense of virtue while, ironically, being just as racist as the anti-Japanese propaganda you've probably seen out there. Throughout their adventures on the Asian continent, Japanese soldiers raped, pillaged, tortured, and massacred, usually just to make a point about their dominance. They experimented on civilians and POWs, usually in ways that could make Dr. Mengele blush, including live vivisections on Chinese prisoners in their infamous Unit 731 up in Harbin, China. Literally the worst things I have ever heard and read, and that is saying something, come out of the rape of Nanking, a story that, unfortunately in some ways, I'm going to have to cover one day, if only for the tiny lights of unlikely heroism that occurred during that perpetually underrated and frequently denied atrocity. The point of this rant is to essentially be a sort of anti-health warning. 
The brutality of the Japanese army does not excuse the racism directed at Japanese people by Allied propaganda. I mean, try watching the uh, banned Bugs Bunny cartoons that served as propaganda at the time if you at least want to see some nice racism cringe. It's, it's bad. But that doesn't make them victims. The Japanese-Americans thrown into concentration camps were victims by virtue of their race. Some of the atrocities committed against Japanese soldiers who had surrendered, the few who did, were victims by virtue of their race. But they weren't the Japanese army fighting against the Allies, and who continued to fight against the Allies rather than surrender. The Japanese army had no problem treating and referring to its enemies, Asian and non-Asian alike, as subhuman monkeys. And this, along with their own cultural standards of honor and disdain for prisoners, which they saw as cowards and even traitors, is what allowed them to make torture of their enemies a feature rather than a bug. This feature of torture was reinforced not just by cultural carrots and sticks, to parrot Dan Carlin yet again, but even as a matter of military policy. As in, this is how you're supposed to commit a war crime, though, of course, they never framed it that way. In a document known as the Secret War Service Guide, distributed to officers in the Japanese armed services, particularly those in the Kempitai, which was the Japanese version of the Gestapo, there's a section in this guide called Fundamental Rules for Interrogating War Prisoners. This section is exactly as it sounds. A list of rules written in the cold, calculating language of an instruction manual. The kind you used to get when you bought a DVD player or a new TV. The number of rules regarding interrogation? 69. Seven of these rules are dedicated to the question of torture, which I, I guess the only silver lining is that they don't use Orwellian euphemisms like enhanced interrogation techniques, and at least I, they have the common decency to refer to torture as torture. I'll give them that, I guess. I'm going to spend some time reading through some of these rules to you, and I think it's important to quote them at length so you have a good idea of how, to use the word again, calculated the use of torture by the Japanese against Allied prisoners actually was how thoroughly this was thought through. So please bear with me on this. It needs to be said. Starting with Rule 62, regarding the rules for interrogating war prisoners. Quote, Sometimes, depending on the circumstances, it is advantageous to resort to torture, but often this may lead to harmful consequences. And therefore, before resorting to it, it is necessary to carefully consider whether this should be done or not. Furthermore, torture must be applied in such a way as to not lead to bad consequences for us. Unquote. Already thinking about how to cover their own asses, right? Continuing, quote, Rule 63. Torture, the infliction of physical suffering, must be sustained and continued in such a way that there shall be no other way of relief from suffering except by giving truthful information. Torture is advantageous because of the speed with which it is possible with relative ease to compel persons of weak will to give truthful testimony. But there is danger that, in order to relieve himself from suffering, or in order to please the interrogator, the interrogated person will, on the contrary, distort the truth. 
In the case of persons of strong will, torture may strengthen their will to resist and leave ill feeling against the empire after interrogation. Unquote. Basically, this is calling for case-by-case nuance with torture. In a sick way, there's something admirable, I guess. There's probably a better word, but there's something about the pragmatism being applied here. It's chilling. Continuing on to a later rule, quote, Rule 65. It is necessary to bear in mind that the methods of torture must be such as can be easily applied, as will sustain suffering without rousing feelings of pity, and as will not leave wounds or scars. However, in those cases where it is necessary to create apprehension of death, the harm caused the person interrogated can be ignored, but this must be done in such a way as to not make it impossible to continue the interrogation. Unquote. In other words, make sure you're hurting them enough, just enough, that they suffer enough to want to make the suffering stop by giving you information, but not so much that you feel bad for them or leave a mark unless you feel like you need to, so torture away. Just make sure he's able to talk. Jesus. Moving on. The report lists five examples of torture methods that could be used against prisoners. Quote, 1. Compelling the person to sit up straight and motionless. 2. Putting pencils between the fingers not too far from their bases and tying the tops of the fingers with string and moving them. 3. Putting the interrogated person on his back. It is advisable to raise the feet a little. And dripping, that's in quotes by the way, water into the nose and mouth simultaneously. 4. Putting the interrogated person on his side and stamp on his ankle. 5. Compelling the interrogated person to stand under a shelf that is too low to enable him to stand straight. Unquote. And finally, concluding with Rule 68 and Rule 69, quote, After the application of torture, it is necessary to convince the person who had undergone torture that the torture applied to him was quite a natural measure, or to take such measures as will induce him out of a sense of pride, sense of honor, etc., not to speak about it afterwards. In the case of persons from whom this cannot be expected, measures must be taken as in the case of those upon whom accidental wounds have been inflicted. Nobody must know about the application of torture except the persons concerned with this. Under no circumstances must other prisoners know about it. It is very important to take measures to prevent shrieks from being heard. Unquote. The language is indeed dry, but you can still get a really chilling sense of how awful things would be for you as a POW of the Japanese if they came to believe that you had valuable information that needed extracting, ranging from the tortures themselves to the attempts to deliberately traumatize prisoners into silence, even to their own compatriots. But even reading some of those tortures, especially like the use of the phrase dripping water or raise his feet a little with regards to the waterboarding method, it all just feels like euphemism, despite the directness in the language, because it downplays, even obscures the horror, the reality behind the words, especially when there was far more 
than the five methods described, or rather, suggested, by the manual. The reality behind the dry language is indeed brought to sickening light from the testimony of the heroic Colonel Philip Tusi, who plays a sort of tangential part of our story, so we'll be looking at him here for a little bit. He's actually the man upon whom the Alec Guinness character in the classic film Bridge on the River Kwai is based, though the reality of his role as essentially a collaborator with the captors was greatly exaggerated and even pretty controversial at the time. It actually led to Tusi eventually writing a letter to the London Daily Telegraph condemning the film's portrayal of the bridge's construction. Acting as the commanding officer of the British troops forced to work on the Burma-Siam Railway, particularly on the bridge planned to span the River Kwai, he frequently came into conflict with his captors over their treatment of his men, later quoting a sentence from Edgar Snow's Red Star Over Asia, quote, Nowhere in the world was sadism practiced with greater efficiency than in the Japanese army, unquote, and that, quote, every form of cruelty that an uncivilized mind could invent was used on the prisoners, unquote. Besides noting the corporal punishment he witnessed after 10 of his men were caught trying to sell their tools to native ties, likely so they could afford better food than they were getting, he witnessed the men's torture at the hands of the aforementioned Kempitai, the Japanese Gestapo. Noting the objects they brought with them included handcuffs, sharpened bamboo sticks, thumbscrews, and whips, Tusi would later recall the following, quote, the men were subjected to the most fiendish tortures, which included sticking lighted cigarettes into their noses and ears. They also gave them what they were pleased to call the water treatment. This consisted of holding a man down on his back, placing a rice sack over his face, and pouring water from a four-gallon can into his mouth. The result was that within a few minutes, the man's stomach was swollen to an amazing extent with the amount of water with which he had been forced to swallow. The next step was to jump on his stomach with dire results. All these were accompanied by various face slapping, with the result that several of the men broke down and the Japanese were able to procure the information as to which ties the tools had been sold to. Unquote. When thinking about what Tusi described as the water treatment, just make sure you remember Christopher Hitchens' description from earlier in our story and how truly, purely awful it was. And more importantly, also remember that Hitchens could stop the torture at any time. After the war, Tusi would write a report adding to his testimony about torture in which he listed the various forms of corporal punishment endured by his men and even himself at times usually for even the tiniest of infractions, like not bowing deeply enough in front of a Japanese officer, uh, not having any water in the ashtrays of the barracks, or even wearing a sweat-collecting towel around the neck in front of the guard room. Like the torture, which is why I include corporal punishment by the Japanese alongside their torture, it was all designed to do one thing, to break these men. Tusi would report the following punishments. Quote, beatings up in the face with an open hand or closed fist, beating up on any part of the body with any form of implement available, including iron crowbars and great branches of wood, kicks on the head, in the private parts, in the stomach and legs, being made to stand at attention in front of the guard room or anywhere else for hours on end, sometimes holding lumps of wood or other weighty objects above the head, 
kneeling in front of the guard room on two bamboos. Two prisoners being made to beat each other up, doing hand presses for an indefinite period under the eyes of a guard who would strike the offender if he showed any signs of relaxing. Solitary confinement in tiny cells of earth and bamboo for weeks at a time. Unquote. Another thing to keep in mind about all of this was that these punishments, these tortures, were conducted on starved, usually diseased, and already weakened men. Their daily rations were paltry at best, averaging at about 700 grams of rice, 600 grams of veggies, 100 grams of meat, 20 grams of salt, and 15 grams of oil per day. If you start counting the calories of this ration, it might seem like a fair amount, but you need to remember that these men were doing back-breaking physical labor in the sweltering humidity of the jungle while also contending with various diseases that they had never encountered before, very weakening diseases, for hours every day, usually without much of a break. Those calories mean very little when you're likely burning twice that, if not more, especially when the calories are mostly coming from rice. This was because the majority of these abuses, specifically those from the Japanese committed against the British allies, were committed during the construction of the aforementioned and now infamous Burma-Siam Railway, better known to history as the Railway of Death. This railway was where the British POWs were reduced to the status of emaciated slaves. Their appearance was not unlike the Jews and political prisoners being worked to death in Dachau. And I don't make that comparison lightly, by the way. Seriously, take a look at the horrifying photos and video of the British POWs held by the Japanese. Remember all those descriptions I gave of walking skeletons in the last episode when I talked about Dachau? Yeah. This railway of death is important to briefly cover so we can provide some context for our story, since it's where nearly all of it takes place, symbolically and literally, actually. I'm not going to cover the Pacific theater of World War II or even the Japanese conquest of Burma at a Dan Carlin supernova in the East level of detail here, so please consider this the Notes version of this part of the war. I realize that a lot of you listening are big World War II fans, and I... And I would probably love to learn more about this. And trust me, I don't blame you. It really is interesting. So if you're interested in learning more, I can't recommend the book Surviving the Sword by author and journalist Brian MacArthur enough, who I'll be pulling a lot of this information from as we march toward our story's main character. The Railway of Death was actually an immediate necessity for the Japanese army after they conquered Burma in May of 1942. The thing about war, especially one on the scale of the Second World War, is that it's always going to end really quickly if you can't supply your troops. And as Japan expanded its reach, its supply lines were getting increasingly thin and vulnerable. Burma was the most far-flung imperial acquisition by the Japanese at this point, so the only way their troops were getting supplied was by sea, which was really vulnerable to things like Allied submarines and other battleships. Railways, as it happens, are a great way to move troops and supplies across the land quickly, so the Japanese took one look at the fertile land and decided that we need a railway here. And with the recent fall of Singapore to Japanese forces and the acquisition of around 85,000 captured British troops, 
the Japanese had a sizable workforce that they saw as basically completely expendable. It's somewhat ironic that the Japanese used British troops, and as well as several thousand Australians, Dutch, and even a couple hundred Americans. I'll, I'll be fair. They were definitely part of this suffering. But it's ironic that the Japanese used the British to build the Railway of Death, since the Brits had actually been eyeing the possibility of building a railway through Burma and into Siam, which is the old name for modern-day Thailand, since 1885. They've been kicking that idea around for a while at this point. The important wrinkle in this, though, and the reason why the British never undertook this task, was simple. The likely human cost was deemed far too high. The Japanese Empire had no such concern. And why would they? Again, they had an 85,000-man workforce that was basically an expendable resource. As Brian MacArthur writes in Surviving the Sword, quote, the ambition of the Japanese engineers was in one sense awe-inspiring. With one set of prisoners working in Burma and another, much larger group in Thailand, the railway was to be driven 258 miles through some of the most hostile territory on Earth, irrespective of the cost in human lives. Unquote. The Japanese started the project in September of 1942. They expected it to be completed by December of 1943. And the numbers, when you put them all together, are actually quite staggering. 688 bridges needed to be built, 60,000 cubic feet of timber, and 650,000 cubic feet of timber poles had to be constructed. 4 million cubic meters of earthworks, 300 tons of explosive designed to blast away rock, frequently detonated by the Japanese soldiers, by the way, who seemed to get a kick out of blowing up some of the workers, just for fun. The amount of rock shifted during the construction of this railway was a whopping 3 million cubic meters. And for context, the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., I believe still holds the world record for the world's largest office building. It's 2,181,117 cubic meters. This means that the amount of rock shifted when constructing the Burma-Siam Railway usually by hand and basket, by the way, by these starved, beaten, diseased, and tortured men during the span of less than two years, it wouldn't fit inside the world's largest office building. That's crazy. Captain Richard Sharp, a Scottish officer who was forced to work on the railway, would later describe the backbreaking labor itself that was forced upon all of the captured men, European and Chinese alike. Quote, here, the perpetual fetch and carry of the earth and rubble-filled basket as the men dig down into the cutting and strew the waste rolling down the slope. There, the constant clink of steel on stone as the pairs of hammermen, one holding, one hitting, chisel out their meter-deep holes ready to take the blast charges. And on both sides of the river, timbers are prepared for the viaduct. On this, the officers' party bore the holes, and carry the huge beams to their assembly point, while on the other, Chinese coolies trim the logs with adzes, bore them, and have elephants drag them down to the water's edge. From there, they're floated, so heavy that they half sink across to the bridge side. There is no let-up in the work. To a Jap, none of us was working so hard that he could not work harder, and Spidu, hurry upu, was their unchanging yell. Unquote. And again, remember, 
This was probably one of the worst places on Earth in terms of climate and landscape conditions, especially when conducting a project on this scale. And it wasn't being done with cutting-edge tech, or in case I haven't made it clear, the best conditions for the laborers who were basically slaves. An Australian journalist stationed in Malaysia who was captured by the Japanese named Rohan Rivet described the reality of the railway project's conditions as uh, follows. Quote, Serried ranges of precipitous mountains on the Burma-Siam border, scores of streams which became raging rivers in the rainy season, steep ravines and abysses which had to be bridged made this an undertaking which, though often contemplated in the past, had never been effected. It demanded the very latest in modern clearing, engineering, and bridge-building equipment. But the Japanese provided the prisoners with none of these things. The only quote-unquote medical aid came from a handful of elephants, most of whom died from overwork and underfeeding. Unspeakable living quarters, denial of medical supplies, and a steady worsening of the rations, which at best were never suitable nor adequate, made the death of thousands inevitable. Unquote. We can also get an even more detailed look at the hellish conditions faced by the laborers by looking at the testimony given by a Captain C.E. Eskrit who worked the railway. This is a longer, more in-depth quote, but I think it's the best way to get these hellish conditions across if we let someone who experienced them have the final word on them. Captain Eskrit would recall the following, quote, the heap of fallen leaves were soft to the touch, but ice-cold shivers ran evilly down one's back. The centipedes, flies, and scorpions were frightening, and one encountered snakes of unusual shape. Soldier ants kept falling onto the back of the neck, and little flies tormented one, flying into the eyes. For either sense of sight or of hearing, there was no relief. In the depth of the deep forest and undergrowth beneath the trees, there was an inch-deep thick layer— of fallen leaves and the sunlight was obstructed, so it was dim in daytime. Visibility was limited, and one called out one's position to the next man to confirm it, and they often lost their way. When the sun shone, it was day, but one's ability to define the period of daylight disappeared. Squalls broke out suddenly. From between the leaves, big drops began to fall. Instantly, the rain reached the bamboo grass. The rain splashed up like arrows, hitting everything, and everywhere it was misty and dim. The rain stopped at one meter, did not evaporate. Visibility was nil. Under one's feet, leaves began to pile up, and straight away there was stagnant water. Suddenly, one's whole body crying out for cover, the rain penetrated to one's underwear and uncomfortable shivers attacked one's body. At this time, I was made keenly aware of the powerlessness of man made sport of by the violence of nature. Unquote. I've lived in Los Angeles for just over half a decade, and I do find myself missing rain quite a bit. But this description by Captain Eskrit makes me reconsider that nostalgia. This was clearly hell on earth, but a different kind of hell on earth than the one I described in the episode I did on the Finnish-Soviet Winter War and the Super Sniper Simohaya. If there's anything I hate worse than emergency condition level cold, it's heavy humidity combined with filth and bugs. It's the worst. I can't even imagine what this was like. And if you think the weather and starvation and constant physical labor were bad enough... These conditions were made even worse 
by outbreaks of tropical diseases. Malaria, cholera, dysentery, beriberi, all of which exacerbated by the starvation and lack of essential vitamins and nutrients and even simple hygiene, as well as contaminated water and food. Bacterial infections, including gangrene, would require amputations, usually with some sake being the only anesthetic as the infected limb was removed. Uncontrollable shivering, coughing, sneezing, vomiting, and diarrhea were all common among the thousands of men who worked along the railway, with most of them experiencing more than one of the common maladies that was hitting them. A lot of comorbidity there. While many of the Dutch laborers had actually been in Southeast Asia for generations, thanks to their imperial presence there, they had become resistant to these tropical diseases, but the other prisoners, especially the British and the Americans, were not so lucky. There was even an instance where, at the Japanese POW camp of Sung Krai, along the railway, 1,400 of 1,600 British POWs died from deliberately untreated cholera in a matter of months. Brian MacArthur, the writer and journalist we've been quoting from, he describes how the laborers working on the infamous River Kwai were in particularly terrible condition, especially at the hospital in Tamarkin, where apparently 75% of the prisoners brought in were stretcher cases, meaning that they couldn't even stand under their own willpower, let alone walk. Describing an occasion where 60 stretcher cases were simply booted from a truck and left in a paddy field during a rainstorm at 3 in the morning, MacArthur quotes our friend Colonel Philip Tusi again, observing the men's condition. Quote, As a typical example, I can remember one man who was so thin he could be lifted easily in one arm. His hair was growing down his back and was full of maggots. His clothing consisted of a ragged pair of shorts, soaked with dysentery excreta. He was lousy and covered with flies all the time. He was so weak, he was unable to lift his hand to brush away the flies, which were clustered in his eyes and on the sore places of his body. I forced a Japanese staff to come and look at these parties, which could be smelt for some hundreds of yards, but with the exception of the camp commander, they showed no signs of sympathy and sometimes merely laughed. Unquote. Sometimes merely laughed. How nice. And this raises the need for an important reminder. Despite all this suffering at the hands of Mother Nature, many of the Japanese soldiers still wantonly mistreated, beat, and tortured these men, especially if they felt that they had given them reason to, like trying to get extra food from the Thai natives, or really doing anything that suggested they were trying to escape. This was the experience of thousands and thousands of British men, and all of their stories deserve recognition, and I hope I've done a good job explaining some of their stories, though there are many more. You can find great visual evidence of their suffering through the artwork sketched out by POWs like Ronald Searle and Jack Chalker and Stanley Gibson. They help illustrate really what this hell on earth was like for these thousands of men who worked and suffered under the yoke of Japanese imperialism. But there was one man among these thousands in particular that, in my view, deserves special attention. Not because he suffered any worse than many of these POWs. He didn't, and he certainly wouldn't have wanted to suggest that, I'm sure. But because of the remarkable journey his life from Edinburgh, Scotland, 
to serving in the British Army in Singapore, to being captured by the Japanese, to being freed at the war's end, to how this unfolded afterward and coming face to face with his enemy after 70 years. This man was named Eric Lomax. Also, and perhaps better known to World War II history thanks to his memoir and films based on his experiences of the same name, he was known as the Railway Man. In some ways, in particular, for the purposes of our story today, Eric Lomax's story began while he stood at attention outside the guard hut at Kanchanaburi on the Thailand side of the Railway of Death, listening to the sounds of his comrade, a man named McKay, being beaten with pick halves, quote, which rose and fell ceaselessly, unquote, knowing that his turn was coming. He had been imprisoned for over a year, but his sentence, the one that would stay with him for much of the rest of his life, was about to begin. He describes the feeling as follows, quote, The moments while I was waiting my turn were the worst of my life. The expectation is indescribable. A childhood story of Protestant martyrs watching friends die in agony on the rack flashed through my mind. To have to witness the torture of others and to see the preparations for the attack on one's own body is a punishment in itself especially when there is no escape. This experience is the beginning of a form of insanity. Unquote. Lomax continues to describe what it was like when his turn came. Quote, then me. It must have been about midnight. I took off my spectacles and my watch carefully, turned and laid them down on the table behind me in the guard room. It was almost as if I was preparing to go into a swimming pool, so careful was the gesture of folding them and laying them down. I must have had to take a couple of steps backward to perform this neat, unconscious maneuver. None of the guards made a move or said a word. Perhaps they were too surprised. I was called forward. I stood to attention. They stood facing me, breathing heavily. There was a pause. It seemed to drag on for minutes. Then I went down, with a blow that shook every bone, and which released a sensation of scorching liquid pain which seared through my entire body. Sudden blows struck me all over. I felt myself plunging downwards into an abyss with tremendous flashes of solid light which burned and agonized. I could identify the periodic stamping of boots on the back of my head, crunching my face into the gravel, the crack of bones snapping, my teeth breaking, and my own involuntary attempts to respond to deep, vicious kicks and to regain an upright position only to be thrown to the ground once more. Unquote. 
Lomax continues to describe the beating, the moment he realized his hips were being shattered, the moment he raised his wrist to protect himself and the pick half broke it in several places, the feeling of his, quote, skeleton etched out in pain, unquote. Lomax continues to reflect on the beating, the torture, as he rightly called it, as follows, quote, It went on and on. I could not measure the time it took. There are some things that you cannot measure in time, and this is one of them. Absurdly, the comparison that often comes to my mind is that torture was indeed like an awful job interview. It compresses time strangely, and at the end of it, you cannot tell whether it has lasted five minutes or an hour. I do know that I thought I was dying. I have never forgotten, from that moment onwards, crying out Jesus, crying out for help, the utter despair of helplessness. I rolled into a deep ditch of foul, stagnant water, which, in the second or two before consciousness was finally extinguished, flowed over me with the freshness of a pure and sweet spring. Unquote. How did Eric Lomax get here? He likely wondered that himself as he drifted out of consciousness in that puddle of fetid mud water. He certainly reflected on that question throughout his life, enough so to write an entire book about it called The Railway Man, which we are pulling from throughout this story. And he begins where I think we should begin, thanks to that nickname of his, The Railway Man, which is with his love of trains. This might seem odd for us to focus on or for Lomax to focus on, but it matters deeply for our story because... Well, both because it was his true passion in life, but also for the grand cosmic irony that he'd become forced to work on literally the worst railway on Earth that we just spent the better part of the last half hour, 45 minutes talking about. There are other elements as to why Lomax's love of trains and railways matter to our story, but I'm sure you'll be able to pick them up as we go just fine on your own. Lomax was, to use a term some of you UK listeners are probably much more aware of than my American listeners, he was a train spotter. For the Americans and other nationalities out there who don't know what I'm talking about beyond the title of two very awesome Danny Boyle dark comedy starring Ewan McGregor, train spotting is actually just what it sounds like. Spotting or watching trains. Learning their timetables. Trying to guess which train is which from a distance predicting when they'll be passing by a particular point and trying to be at that point at that particular time. I, I won't pretend I fully understand it, and I probably didn't even get the details of train spotting activities completely right. That's just my basic understanding of them. It holds a bit of fascination for me in the same way as ham radio enthusiasts do. It's just not something that I would likely ever do for f or see as fun, but... It's endlessly intriguing to me that there are those who do see it that way, who see it as a satisfying hobby, if not an outright passion or mania. We all have our fixations, and I did indeed have a train phase as a very young child. Thomas the Tank Engine was my jam, but train spotting is much more serious business that tends to last a lifetime and mean a lot to its fan base. This is impossible to miss when you consider that Lomax started his memoir speaking of how, quote, railway stations have always attracted me, unquote, and how it's not just because he loved trains, but also how they're, quote, ambivalent places, echoing with completed journeys and shrill with the melancholy noises of departure, unquote. 
He concludes this opening meditation on his love affair with trains and stations in a very striking way. Quote, The passion for trains and railways is, I have been told, incurable. I have also learned that there is no cure for torture. These two afflictions have been intimately linked in the course of my life, and yet through some chance combination of luck and grace I have survived them both. But it took me nearly 50 years to surmount the consequences of torture. Unquote. The train passion was indeed lifelong for him, since he describes his very first memory as a toddler being that of, quote, a huge barricade of train cars, unquote. Whatever aesthetic reason there was to this, or any childhood obsession for that matter, is sort of left up to the imagination. But his reflections on how trains provide a sense of order within a web of chaos, of, quote, an orderly grid on the chaotic life of the city, unquote, as he put it, it, it kind of does make sense to me, both from the perspective of a tiny child, you know, frightened of the big world and the multitudes of unknowns surrounding him, but also from the perspective of someone suffering from chronic generalized anxiety or post-traumatic in Lomax's case to whom the disorder of a bustling city, street, house, or even room can be crippling. Eric Lomax was born in 1919, at a time when trains and trams were the best, fastest way to travel, much more so than later on in the 20th century when they were, well, basically largely replaced by planes. In his memoir, Eric Lomax describes his father, John Lomax, as, quote, a quiet, disciplined, serious man who knew what was best for his wife and child and was unused to taking no for an answer in his own house, unquote. So, kind of a hard-ass, classic, early 20th century hard-ass father. Eric Lomax also describes his father as, quote, a child of the Industrial Revolution, unquote, and connects that to his early exposure to trains and railways, including the moment that his father bemoaned the loss of the Edinburgh steam engine in favor of the electric tram. Interestingly, Lomax never gives his mother's name, reasons for which are up for speculation, but I suspect it's related to what happened later in his life. But he does describe her as a native of the Shetland Islands in, quote, a community which still spoke a dialect of Norse, unquote, and someone who, quote, talked about lonely crofts, herring fishing, peat fires, and the never-ending sound of the sea, unquote. Basically, the polar opposite of his urban and progress-conscious father. He also describes her giving him a, quote, sense of mystery, unquote, as well as deeply caring for him to the point of being, well, a little overprotective and even, quote-unquote, a little possessive, but also accommodating of his own idiosyncrasies as a child. So, sounds like a, a decent balance for a mom to have. Because from a very young age, Lomax was a list maker. This was in line with his train spotting obsession, but as a kid, he would not just make lists, but cut out newspaper clippings, write down details of whatever was on his mind, and his mother would provide him with all the paper he needed to accomplish this. So, again, supporting his weird little idiosyncrasies that usually only a child would have. Lomax's mother's accommodating nature expanded to his train obsession, though, and soon he was being shown the inside of locomotives and having his obsession nurtured. But nurturing this obsession, and perhaps the overprotectiveness Lomax sensed in his mother from his memoir, led to Lomax being, as he put it, quote, not particularly isolated, but perhaps aloof, unquote, as well as someone who, quote, avoided organized sports and games with stubborn determination, a nonconformity regarded as eccentric at a time when team spirit was the key to manliness, 
unquote. This is actually kind of funny because I relate to the nonconformity aspect of this recollection, at least. I remember as a kid, I enjoyed playing games and tearing around, but as soon as the team organization element came into play, I immediately began to lose interest. On the one hand, it allowed me to find the joy in individualism from a young age, but on the other, it's not the best for nurturing a sense of teamwork or character building among others. I don't think that this was necessarily Lomax's uh, problem, but I did get the sense reading this that I may have taken a number of similar turns in my life had I lived his. This isn't to say that Lomax wasn't a team player in his youth. He didn't like sports, but he did join the Owl Patrol of the 12th Edinburgh Royal High School Scouts as a teenager. This isn't to say he enjoyed school. In fact, he described finding, quote, the syllabus intolerably dull, unquote, replacing his school interests with unsurprisingly, collecting things. He describes starting with stamps and then later moving on to coins, cigarette cards, and postcards, but then on September 12, 1932, and he does claim to remember the date exactly, he discovered train spotting, or as he calls it in his memoir, quote, my incurable interest in railways, unquote. He even adds a little something that I wish I had a different adjective for other than cute, to describe when it comes to this old man's lifelong railway obsession. Quote, I have certainly felt a little eccentric at times, but I suspect that we are all railway lovers at some deep level. Unquote. Cuteness or charm aside, honestly, this is only one part of the reason one could call Eric Lomax the railway man. Because at the age of 16... In 1935, Lomax entered the civil service, starting off as a sorting clerk, which in some ways began his long road to the Burma-Siam Railway of Death years later. From 1935 until 1940, he worked his way up from sorting mail, writing memos, and making note of fuel consumption to taking classes in telegraphy and telephony, uh, giving him the necessary experience to basically be a radio man. While enrolled in classes and later beginning his military service, Lomax recalled hearing the speeches being broadcast by Adolf Hitler, which he described as, quote, an endless rhythmic scream full of strange crescendos, unquote, uh, that sort of served as a foreshadow for the chaos to come. As Lomax remembers in his memoir, quote, Hitler was not only the most powerful man in Europe, he was also clearly mad, unquote. I don't think I've ever heard a more British take on the mouth-frothing rantings of the world's most famous dictator. Nevertheless, he describes himself, Lomax does, as never being particularly political, instead remaining more interested in mechanical things and his growing religious convictions, since he'd actually joined uh, an English Baptist church, which might not mean much to the Americans listening, since Baptist churches are kind of a dime a dozen here, but in England... That was actually a pretty contrarian move on Lomax's part, at least at the time. That's how he describes it, at least. But not being particularly political, it might seem odd that Lomax volunteered for military service now that war had broken out between England and the Axis powers. And I say England since the U.S. hadn't joined the war yet, and Stalin and Hitler were still playing that weird little game of footsie of theirs leading up to Operation Barbarossa. But in his memoirs, Lomax explains that he joined up to avoid conscription into a unit or duty not to his tastes, instead opting for volunteering with the Supplemental Reserve of the Royal Corps of Signals, or, well, telephone operators. 
which got him first stationed at Edinburgh Castle and later at the Mills Mount Military Base under the service number 2338617 with the job title of signalman. From what I can tell, Lomax never received basic combat training, though he did go through a number of air raids, as did many people living under the threat of Nazi bombardment did in those days. And when he applied for an officer's commission, he received the rank of second lieutenant. According to Lomax, his superior officer gave him a look and reminded him that this was a rank with a two-week life expectancy during the First World War. Lomax, being nothing if not stubborn, simply stated his desire to quote-unquote persist and began training as a signals officer, which he did become by late 1940, after which he was placed in a holding battalion, which was stationed in the seaside town of Scarborough. Within three months, in March of 1941, Lomax learned that he was going to be on the opposite side of the globe, quote, defending the eastern borders of the empire, unquote, as he recalled. He would be stationed smack dab in the jewel of the British crown, Hindustan, the British Raj, India, and eventually right in the path of the Japanese empire's plans for Asian domination. Remembering his departure, Lomax describes the crowds of parents, including his own, come to see him and the rest of the boys off on their adventures in the East. Quote, They stood smiling, even laughing, but doing it with the tense hilarity of people who are determined to be remembered well and know that they are now playing against frightening odds with their love for their children. My mother stood there in the crowd, and I suppose she waved. She looked distraught. I never saw her again. Unquote. Six weeks later, after a brief sojourn in Cape Town, South Africa, where he took in the sights, including, of course, the railway station to admire, quote, the oldest surviving Scottish engine in the world, unquote, Lomax arrived in Bombay, India, before being shipped another 1,400 miles north to Rawalpindi in the foothills of the Himalayas. This was only a stepping stone for him on his journey to becoming a prisoner, but it's worth mentioning if only for his reflections upon seeing the grand scale of the world that he likely didn't know, or at least appreciate that it existed until then. Experiencing the Vale of Kashmir seems to have made a massive impression on Lomax, since he spent much of his time in Rawalpindi getting as high into the mountains as was possible, riding horses literally into the clouds. He describes the moment he stopped in Shisha Nag, a massive lake in the Lidar Valley, two miles above sea level. It was probably his last moment of true peace before the chaos of war would finally swallow him up. He would remember this piece as follows, quote, I remember the sun, the cold, the enormous river of ice in the air above me glittering as I ate hard-boiled eggs and boiled ice for water. In the early morning, the snow on the mountain peaks was caught by the sun, turning peak before the light penetrated to the valley floor. Then there was the silence. I do not think I have ever, before or since, heard such peace and deep silence. There were other kinds of silence later, but they were tense and sick with anxiety and violence. Unquote. Soon after his brief adventures in the Himalayas, Eric Lomax was granted command of the signal section in the 5th Field Regiment Royal Artillery, which was a regiment being prepared for what he recalls was being called, quote-unquote, tropical service. Within days, he was back in Bombay, and then taking the Orient Line flagship Orion to probably the worst place to be stationed in late 1941, at least if you were gifted with the ability to read the future. Singapore. 
stationed under the famous and eventually scapegoated Lieutenant General A.E. Percival, the man responsible for the British Empire's largest surrender in its entire history. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, only one month after Lomax was stationed in Singapore, and after it became increasingly clear how poorly equipped and badly supported the Commonwealth Army in Singapore was, the writing was on the wall. Despite this, there was still a lot of understandable denial going on with the men serving with Lomax. In fact, Lomax remembers that only hours after he first arrived in Singapore, quote, some hopeless decent man, unquote, was telling him that the Japanese wouldn't even come from Malaya, the country attached to Singapore, claiming, quote, there is nothing there. It's just solid jungle all the way up. They will not come that way, unquote. This kind of nonchalance probably didn't feel too great when Singapore fell in early 1942. The airfield Lomax and his thousands of British comrades had been ordered to defend to the last man had been abandoned. The seemingly invincible battleships, the Prince of Wales and the Repulse, were on fire. And Lomax's friends started to die, beginning with a man named Taffy Davies, an artillery officer who was found machine-gunned and bayoneted on the side of the road after setting out to cover a delivery of ammunition. By the time the retreat was ordered, Lomax remembers not even being that surprised. He was more surprised by the fact that despite all clear evidence of defeat, including dead friends, he hadn't even seen one Japanese soldier. Not one. This can give you a really good idea of not just the scale of the invasion of Singapore, not just the scale of the Pacific theater, but of the scale of the war itself. You see death all around you, you, you hear it, you hear the explosions, and yet you never even see the enemy. That's how much ground is being covered. It's really insane when you take a step back and think about it. In fact, Dan Carlin kind of talks about it in his Supernova in the East series, which I can't recommend enough if you're really into learning about the Pacific theater of World War II, at least in podcast form. Anyway, the British retreat, as Lomax describes it, was, quote, confused three or four day marches followed by a sudden halt in order to emplace the guns to fire in support of an infantry counterattack somewhere off behind us and then the regiment would move on again unquote and, and not that it didn't have its own confusion mistakes and, and just overall chaotic aspects but this was essentially the dark mirror of dunkirk where dunkirk was a heroic coordinated effort to save thousands and thousands of british trapped on the french shores the retreat through the Malaysian wilderness was haphazard, messy, and basically ended in disaster. This isn't to say, by the way, that the men fleeing the Japanese weren't heroes and didn't do heroic deeds themselves, by the way. The Frontier Force Regiment fighting under A.E. Percival is evidence of that. This is just to show the stark difference in the perception of the two major British evacuations at this point in the war, and how really truly dire the situation in Singapore felt to the men on the ground. Lomax himself reflected on this sentiment, writing, quote, I had heard the British Empire begin to fall, if I had but known it, unquote, recalling how he felt when he learned of the destruction of the Prince of Wales and the Repulse, the two massive battleships. As the weeks chugged on to the fateful day that Winston Churchill would call, quote, the worst disaster and largest capitulation in British history, unquote, Lomax would find himself stationed as a signals officer at Lieutenant General Percival's headquarters, Fort Canning in Singapore City, a place called the Battle Box, and a place he wouldn't leave for three full weeks, working 18 hours a day and sleeping on the floor. 
When February 15, 1942 rolled around and when Lieutenant General Percival marched under a white flag to negotiate the surrender of Singapore to the Japanese forces, Lomax saw his first Japanese soldier among the group that, quote, strode confidently into the fort. He continues to reflect on the reality of his situation, quote, These people now ruled Malaya, dominated the seas from India to Polynesia, and had broken the power of at least three European empires in Asia. I was their prisoner. Unquote. Lomax and fellow prisoners of war were forced marched to the prison of Changi, the place that they would uh, ostensibly be held until the end of the war or until the Japanese found use for them. And as we know from earlier in our story, the Japanese did indeed find use for many of these men in the years to come when they decided to do what the British estimated would take five years in only 18 months. Build the Burma-Siam Railway, the Railway of Death. But Lomax had barely an inkling of what was planned for him and his comrades. None of them really knew for that matter. The prisoner ecosystem of Changi was so massive that it, it started to feel like its own little colony for the men, with seemingly only a few dozen Japanese soldiers guarding the place. The truth is, guarding that many men is easy, especially when there is no real chance of escape. Remember the thick jungle described by the hopeless decent man, quote-unquote, that Lomax referenced earlier? Remember the awful conditions I described even earlier in our story? You don't need to be laboring to experience many of these. The laboring makes it worse, but a lot of these conditions are still present. And considering that they were otherwise surrounded by miles of ocean, patrolled by Japanese U-boats and destroyers, it, it, it wasn't looking much better out there either. Nevertheless, when you don't see, like when you don't even perceive the armed guards there, the clearest evidence of your captivity, it's going to clash with the reality of your situation and create some pretty profound cognitive dissonance, and thus a lot of anxiety and fear. Lomax describes this, actually, quite poignantly when talking about his time in Changi in 1942. Quote, what replaced our previous motive force was uncertainty, creeping in and growing stronger day by day, a negative force feeding on anxiety and fear. Before, we'd had the spring of aggression to keep us moving. Now there was a kind of nervous elastic pulling us backwards. We still wanted to fight, but our bitter young energy had to be bottled up. We began to experience the overriding dominant feature of POW life, constant anxiety and utter powerlessness and frustration. There was no relief from these burdens, not even sleep. Unquote. This constant fear or anxiety wasn't helped by news from the outside, from other POWs arriving, including the ones who had come from the Alexandra Hospital in Singapore, where the doctors and nurses were massacred, and patients were butchered in their beds with bayonets by the occupying Japanese forces. A particularly chilling story that Lomax remembers hearing came from the POWs taken by the Japanese from Sumatra, specifically the island of Banka, where a small ship carrying Australian medical staff and wounded men was sunk by Japanese forces. The bulk of the survivors were young women, Australian army nurses, who, when confronted by the Japanese on the shore of Banka Island, were ordered at gunpoint to march right back into the Pacific. Only when they reached the surf were they all cut to pieces by Japanese machine guns, every single one of them. As Lomax said, upon hearing this story in particular, quote, 
the report about the nurses took us across a threshold into a new area of foreboding, unquote. Like a lot of moments in history, there's a bitter irony with this, because this ability to get news from the outside world was about to become scarce and even dangerous for Eric Lomax, even though likely he had no idea that this was about to be the case when he, along with the remaining 18,000 other prisoners at Changi, were given orders by the Japanese commanding officer, a General Fukuye Shinpei, to sign what was being called a, quote, non-escape form, unquote, promising to never try to escape. When only four POWs signed, Fukuye first had four prisoners taken down to the beaches and shot on the spot, and then made sure word spread throughout the camp that this was about to become a normal punishment for not signing the form. Fukuye also made sure to let the POWs know the symbolism of this execution went well beyond simple compliance. He had made sure to orchestrate the execution so that the six remaining British commanding officers were brought to witness the four POWs tied to posts and shot by a firing squad of Indian National Army officers. Despite the grievances of Indian nationalists during this era being actually pretty understandable, the fact that this execution was being conducted at the behest of another, far more brutal imperial force, the Japanese in this case, Lomax is correct to call it like he saw it when he heard the news. Quote, a calculated piece of political theater, unquote, with, quote, British soldiers shot by their former subjects, unquote. Now, this might feel justified to some of you listening, and I'll leave that for you to debate. But Lomax recalls the British officers who witnessed the executions, speaking of how when the first shots failed to kill the captured British soldiers, that slow, repeated volleys were fired until they finally stopped moving in the sand. Regardless of your feelings on imperialism, that's a level of brutality that I think most people with a conscience would consider unnecessary. After the executions and word of them was allowed to spread, Lomax and his comrades were forced into the Selerang barracks, carrying everything they had, from cooking implements to injured comrades, where they were forced to wait out unbearable conditions of disease, starvation, and overcrowding, all with the hope of breaking 18,000 men into signing a worthless piece of paper promising they wouldn't try to escape. Now, their time in Changi really was more like a prison rather than an enclosed colony, with Lomax describing the parade ground on which they were placed being littered with bodies, not to mention the overpowering stench of the latrines not meant to accommodate so many men at once, not to mention the simple reality that many men in such close proximity forming a stench of sweat and mildew all on its own, creating a perfect breeding ground for infectious bacteria, which is already becoming a bigger problem. But despite this... Lomax actually manages to remember a detail from this horrible situation that, well, it struck me as odd, but also, I don't know, I guess unsurprising, given the stories I've heard about men and women in horrible situations coping in mysteriously normal ways. Remembering their second night, in the midst of sick, starved, and wounded POWs, the Australian soldiers among them started a concert, singing classics like There Will Always Be in England and Land of Hope and Glory, but before that, Lomax recalls something else truly haunting, especially if you know the song he's referencing. Quote, Lit by oil lamps, the Australian's choir, quote-unquote, stood at one side of the parade ground and sang Waltine Matilda, the lonely anthem of isolated men. 
Every voice in the square took up the refrain, a chorus of 18,000 sending the wistful, defiant air out past the barrack blocks into the darkness. Unquote. It's this memory of his that, in some ways, is the most striking, at least to me. Here are thousands of men crammed together in a stinking, disease-ridden punishment pit, for lack of a better term, being slowly broken by the enemy, by these hellish conditions imposed on them. And yet, something in all of them compelled them to hold on as tight as they could to something, anything, that would allow them to remember home, to maintain their pride, their humanity. And really, above all, I think it represents something that we all want to see as being pretty undefeatable within most humans. Maybe all humans, when their freedom is taken away from them. When their humanity is slowly being chipped away by forced starvation and disease and bad conditions. To feel free. You may not be free in body, but you'll be free in spirit. That kind of thing. Free from pain. Free from fear. Free from hate. It's a way of telling those that have trapped you in your pain, fear, and hate that no, you don't own me, you won't break me, and you can't break me. Except that ultimately this is a lie. At least at this point in our story of Eric Lomax, the railway man. All men can be broken, and no amount of singing or reminders of home or even glimmers of hope, as much as they can get you through a time of suffering can make the suffering itself end, much less the effect it ultimately has on a man's mind. I've already made a 1984 reference in this episode, and I'm pretty sure I've made 1984 or Orwell references earlier in this thematic World War II trilogy I've been doing, but I don't think this part of our story would be complete without further examination through the lens of how Orwell understood totalitarianism, especially since the beating scene in Book 3, Chapter 2 of 1984 so closely mirrors the experiences Lomax would later go through at the hands of the Kempetai. But also, around that same part of George Orwell's masterpiece, the protagonist Winston attempts to show this exact same defiance as the men at Changi, his own attempt at singing Waltine Matilda with 18,000 other men, toward his torturer O'Brien, the stand-in for the party. The scene begins with Winston making this protestation. Quote, I don't know, I don't care, Winston said. Somehow you will fail. Something will defeat you. Life will defeat you. We control life, Winston, O'Brien said, at all its levels. You are imagining that there is something called human nature which will be outraged by what we do and will turn against us. But we create human nature. Men are infinitely malleable. Or perhaps you have returned to your old idea that the proletarians or the slaves will arise and overthrow us. Put it out of your mind. They are hopeless, like the animals. Humanity is the party. The others are outside, irrelevant. I don't care, Winston said. In the end, they will beat you. Sooner or later, they will see you for what you are and then they will tear you to pieces. Do you see any evidence that this is happening? Or any reason why it should? No, I believe it. I know that you will fail. 
there's something in the universe, I don't know, some spirit, some principle that you will never overcome. Do you believe in God, Winston? No. Then what is it, this principle that will defeat us? I don't know. The spirit of man? And do you consider yourself a man? Yes. If you are a man, Winston, you are the last man. Your kind is extinct. We are the inheritors. Do you understand that you are alone? You are outside history. You are non-existent. Unquote. Lomax and his comrades likely did feel like the last men, with their kind being extinct and the Japanese being their inheritors. That was the purpose of imprisoning them, to make them realize that they were now indeed non-existent. This lengthy quote from 1984, and I, I don't know, this meditation on Orwell's masterpiece might seem a little silly, especially given what we know with hindsight. The Japanese lost. Lomax obviously lived to tell the tale. But let's stop for a second. Even though we certainly know today that the Japanese would fall, that their captives would triumph, thanks to the efforts of the Allied forces crushing the Japanese and freeing them, Again, that's our pesky friend, hindsight, hindsight bias, creeping in again. Lomax and his captured comrades didn't know at the time that they would succeed, that they would be free. Moreover, no man or woman held in captivity knows that. They never do. That's the point, not just of captivity, which it is the point of captivity, but it's also of tormenting the captured, of breaking the captured. That's why... In the present tense, at least, the captors nearly always prevail, as they did here with these 18,000 men. Ultimately, when the Japanese threatened the commanding officer of these men, Colonel Holmes, with releasing a whole hospital full of diseased patients, already diseased patients, into their masses to condemn them all to sickness and probably eventually death, the thousands of British and Australian soldiers signed the non-escape form all under the orders of Colonel Holmes. I, the undersigned, solemnly swear on my honor that I will not, under any circumstances, attempt escape. That's what it said. Even Lomax, after that episode, reflected that, quote, nothing was ever quite the same again, unquote. But as thousands of British POWs, himself included, were shipped deep into the jungle to begin work on this railway that would become known as the Railway of Death, he likely had no idea that his signed promise to never try and escape would be fulfilled for decades to come, even long after the war was over and he was ostensibly free. Once a jolly swagman camped by a billabong under the shade of a coolie bar tree and he sang as he watched and waited till his billy ball you come a waltzing Matilda with me. Waltzing Matilda, waltzing Matilda, you'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. And he sang as he watched and waited till his billy boy. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. Down came a jumbuck to drink at the billabong. Takashi Nagase was a 23-year-old man from Okayama when he was conscripted by the Japanese army in 1941 to serve his emperor in the fight against the Allied powers. 
He was classified as having low physical fitness, giving him something known as B3 status, which led to him being given a position as an interpreter, working for an intelligence officer in Java after a brief stint in Saigon, working for the Japanese general staff office there. From there, he was assigned to quote-unquote transport operations in Singapore in early 1943, which basically involved searching for contraband, and then only a few months later was sent to Bangkok to work on the railway construction staff headquarters, before he became an interpreter working with the dreaded Kempitai military police. He was ordered to work with them because they were being sent to the prison camp of Khanburi to interrogate some prisoners who were found with radio equipment and even hand-drawn maps of the railway. Whether these prisoners were attempting to escape or sabotage the railway itself, it didn't matter. The team of secret police Nagase was assigned to needed to know the extent of these prisoners' plot and to extract confessions from them, and they needed someone who spoke passable English to help facilitate that. In his own memoir, a small book called Crosses and Tigers that unfortunately is next to impossible to find but was thankfully quoted in various parts of my research for this story, Nagase himself described the hellish conditions that he witnessed at the Conbury camp, the same conditions that we've been learning about throughout this story. And these conditions, the state of the men, of the prisoners, and just the overall atmosphere of the place ended up haunting him. He specifically remembers the sickly, sad blue eyes possessed by a malaria-sickened British POW. But Nagase also had a duty, and interrogations of the men caught with the radio and the hand-drawn map were about to begin, and he was needed by the Kempatai to help make these men, these enemies of the Empire, crack and confess. He was present for all the interrogations, but there was one prisoner in particular that stood out to him so much so that he remembered him well enough to include him in his memoirs. Quote, Let me talk about a prisoner for whom I worked as an interpreter. It was found that he had a rough sketch of the Thai-Burma Railway with the names of all the stations when the inspection of their belongings took place. He claimed that he was a railway fanatic and intended to take it home as a souvenir. His explanation was not convincing because the railway was a secret matter in those days. Unquote. Nagasa continues his recollection of the interrogation itself. Quote, the fierce questioning continued from morning till night for over a week, which exhausted me as well. The military policeman sometimes shouted at me because he got too excited to differentiate between the prisoner and me. The suspect looked weak and good-natured, but he repeated his stubborn denials. The MP beat him with a stick. I could not bear the sight, so I advised him to confess and avoid further mental and physical pain. The prisoner just smiled at me. Finally, the policeman applied the usual torture. First, they took him to the bathtub. Then his broken right arm was placed on his front and his left arm behind his back, tied with a cord. They laid him on his back with a towel loosely covering his mouth and nose. They poured water over his face. The soaking cloth blocked his nose and mouth. He struggled to breathe and opened his mouth to inhale air. They poured water into his mouth. I saw his stomach swelling up. Watching the prisoner in great torture, I almost lost my presence of mind. I was desperate to control my shaking body, I feared that he would be killed in my presence. I took him by the broken wrist and felt the pulse. I still remember clearly that I was relieved to feel an unexpected normal pulse. With the prisoner screaming and crying, Mother! Mother! I muttered to myself, Mother, do you know what is happening to your son now? I still cannot stop shuddering every time I recall that horrible scene. Unquote. In case it wasn't clear enough... That prisoner being tortured was Eric Lomax. 
and his torture, his pain, his cries for his mother, and even his claims of having railway mania, quote-unquote, were remembered by Takashi Nagase nearly 50 years after they happened. And Lomax never forgot the small Japanese man speaking English at him, continuing to implore him to confess, and even though Nagase explained that he was horrified by the torture he witnessed, there was no way Lomax knew that. And even if he did, it's unlikely it would matter all that much, at least in the years immediately following the war. Torture and ill-treatment and the scars they lead to don't strengthen much except resentment and hatred. To jump back to Lomax's account of what happened to him after they took him away for questioning, we get a much better sense of the abuse he faced, though Nagase's own account is valuable as well. Before being questioned in the dank interrogation chambers that were being used in the town of Conbury itself, Lomax and his handful of comrades were hauled into tiny makeshift cages constructed from bamboo. These cages were about five feet long and two feet wide, making it impossible for the men to sit or lay comfortably, contorting them into these awful, uncomfortable positions that they couldn't get out of. It was even worse for Lomax because of his broken bones, uh, specifically the ones in his wrists, and they hadn't finished setting in their casts, so he had to hold them upright hour after hour after hour until a full day, 24 hours, passed. Then early the next morning, he was taken to the interrogation room. Inside, he not only saw a, quote, large, broad, muscular, shaven-headed man wearing the uniform of a Japanese NCO, his face and thick-set neck full of latent and obvious violence, unquote. But Lomax also noticed a small, quote-unquote, almost delicate-looking man who seemed to be standing off to the side. He didn't know it yet, but that man was Nagase, and he would essentially serve as the uh, mouth of Sauron for not just the thuggish man, but the Japanese army, and even the Japanese nation altogether, as far as Lomax was concerned. After the NCO shouted demands at Lomax, Nagase would, as Lomax recalled, robotically and disinterestedly, though in retrospect he suspected, correctly as it turns out as we know, that Nagase was arguably just as scared of the giant NCO as Lomax was. Lomax recalled that Nagase translated the following ultimatum, quote, Lomax, we have already examined your colleagues Thu and Smith. They have made full confessions of the extent of their activities in making and using wireless sets in the Sakamoto Bakai. They have fully admitted to circulating news sheets. Lomax, they have already told us all about the part you have played, about the collections of money to buy parts from Bangkok for the radios, and about your passing on the news to other camps. We are satisfied you are guilty. Some of your fellow POWs have used wireless sets before they have been caught and executed. Lomax, you will be killed shortly, whatever happens." but it will be to your advantage in the time remaining to tell us the whole truth. You know now how we deal with people when we wish to be unpleasant. Unquote. I can only take Lomax at his word that this is essentially word for word what Nagase said to him, especially since he reflects so much on the phrase, you will be killed shortly, on a few occasions in his memoirs, not just remembering this one time where Nagase said it. It apparently stuck with him throughout his life. The cold certainty of that phrase, you will be killed shortly, it, it rings so similarly to the way O'Brien says to Winston in 1984 that one day they will shoot him, or how Bane matter-of-factly says to Batman in The Dark Knight Rises that he will show him what he's done to Gotham before he will break him, to make use of the pop culture references that I already made in this episode again. At the end of the day, it's all about exercising the most extreme power over an individual, 
like we were discussing earlier in our story. Lomax truly was at the mercy of the Japanese Empire. He no longer existed as a human being. Ironically, though, they spent hours questioning him about things that made him human. His family history, his work before the war, his war record before the fall of Singapore, and, as it happened, and as you might recall from Nagase's testimony from earlier, his interests in railways. Lomax actually had trouble explaining his quote-unquote railway mania, as Nagase called it, since even though Japan had indeed modernized very rapidly, the idea that trains were anything more than a tool of that modernization was likely a very weird concept for most Japanese people at the time. As Lomax said, Nagase's face was, quote, a cold mask of bafflement, unquote. The questioning then got more existential about the war and specific about Allied war plans, as if Lomax would somehow know these, despite being a captive for over a year at this point. The point of all these, well, pointless questions, though, was actually just to numb Lomax's mind. It's a very common interrogation technique, a way of wearing down the person being questioned. Lomax made sure to give them straight answers when he knew, or at least strongly suspected, that they already knew the answer, and then gave vague, circuitous answers when he thought that they didn't know something. On the one hand, this was smart, but on the other hand, it incentivized the Japanese to create a list of discrepancies in his answers so they could just keep questioning him over and over and over again until these days on end being interrogated began to feel like months, thanks to the repetitive, mind-numbing 18-hour sessions he went through. Eventually, his mind unraveling, Lomax decided that if he was going to go down, he was going to take one of them with him. And that one he took down with him would be the interpreter, Nagase, if only for the repetitive drone of his voice drilling into Lomax's soul. He didn't know it then, but this resolution, this mission he gave himself, wouldn't leave him for decades. After several days went by and a new NCO was assigned to the case, they began to question him about the railway map specifically that he drew, which, along with any information he had about the radio he and his comrades made, really was the main reason he was being questioned at all. A map of this new and semi-secret railway, as far as the Japanese were concerned, and admittedly I do get why, it had to mean something, right? He kept trying to explain to this new NCO through Nagase that he was a railway enthusiast, but again, there was no registry with either of them with what that even meant. They just didn't have that concept. To try and illustrate what he meant... Lomax just started talking their ears off about specific parts of trains that he found fascinating, from gauge systems and the difficulty of exporting locomotives long distance. Lomax remembers that Nagase seemed to begin to understand what Lomax was saying, if only at an intellectual level, being a fanatic about something in other words. I, I'm not trying to be funny, but even I have to admit I'm kind of right there with Nagase on this. But the NCO he was translating for had lost his patience and he yanked Lomax to his feet. Lomax claims that he doesn't remember what happened next, but apparently he was taken to another small room and had his head shoved underwater repeatedly, a cruder kind of water torture than what he would eventually go through. He does, however, remember the beating, in which he was forced to lay on a bench facing upward as the NCO brought a heavy tree branch, a small log, really, and began to beat him with it along the stomach and chest. All the while, between the beatings... Nagase leaned close and said to him, Lomax, you will tell us, then it will stop. 
When the NCO grew tired of beating Lomax, that's when the waterboarding that Nagase described earlier began. But from Lomax's perspective, it was even more horrifying. Quote, He directed the full flow of the now gushing pipe onto my nostrils and mouth at a distance of only a few inches. The water poured down my windpipe and throat and filled my lungs and stomach. The torrent was unimaginably choking. This is the sensation of drowning on dry land on a hot, dry afternoon. Your humanity bursts from within you as you gag and choke. I tried very hard to will unconsciousness, but no relief came. He was too skillful to risk losing me altogether. When I was choking uncontrollably, the NCO took the hose away. The flat, urgent voice of the interpreter resumed above my head, speaking into my ear. The other man, there was another Japanese NCO with them now, hit me with the branch on the shoulders and stomach a few more times. I had nothing to say. I was beyond invention. So they turned the tap on again, and again there was that nausea of rising water from inside my bodily cavity, a flood welling up from within and choking me. Unquote. The torture would continue for hours. And then, characteristic of torture techniques, Lomax would be given warm condensed milk as a way to keep him quote-unquote off balance, as he puts it, since that kind of kindness following the cruelty he had just endured is manufactured ambiguity. Then, as soon as it started to seem like this was to become Lomax's new normal, the interrogations, the torture, it, it all stopped. Abruptly. Lomax and his comrades were pulled from their tiny cramped cages and escorted by Nagase, as it happened, to a waiting truck. Despite asking him a bunch of questions, Nagase wouldn't tell them where they were going. However, a strange thing happened right before the truck pulled away. Lomax writes, quote, As I was climbing aboard the truck, the interpreter walked up close behind me and said gravely, Keep your chin up. He stood there in the yard, a tiny figure standing among the larger regular soldiers. The truck pulled away. Unquote. It was the last time Lomax would see Nagase for five decades. Lomax's journey as a prisoner doesn't end there, and neither did his suffering. But from the moment he left Kamburi and was taken to Bangkok with his comrades, his torture at the hands of the Japanese was done. He was frequently moved over the course of the next several months from a Kempatai holding facility in Bangkok to a manor house used as a prison by the Japanese, and then eventually put on trial with his comrades for their supposed crimes. The Japanese authorities hadn't been able to get any more valuable information out of Lomax or his comrades. And as is always the case with torture, it's hard to know if that was ever even the point. But they were still considered criminals, on top of their being prisoners. The judge gave Thu and Fred Smith ten years each, and the other four comrades along with Lomax five years each. For their sentence, they were being taken 1,200 miles back to where it all began, Singapore. Lomax would be given the prisoner number Rokyaku Jugo, or 615. He and Fred Smith shared a cell for months, essentially starving and becoming infected with all kinds of tropical disease and bacterial infection, thanks to the horrible conditions at the prison, known as Outram Road. It's not worth going through all the monotony described by Lomax here, but needless to say, this prison sentence, one that he wouldn't even come close to completing since this was late 1943, early 1944, and the end of the war was just over a year away, this prison sentence was its own form of torture. And as good of a writer as Lomax is, I don't think it's really worth describing the monotonous routine of sitting in a blank room, being unable to talk for fear of punishment, and just waiting for the next paltry meal. 
It's only really important to point out that Lomax remembers that despite everything, that he and his Combury comrades were actually in better shape than the other prisoners at this facility, some of whom were so weakened from starvation and disease that they just lay prone in the exercise yard until a bigger, stronger comrade picked them up and carried them away. It was clear to Lomax what was happening, that despite some of the labor they were forced to engage in, they had essentially just been sent here to die. Eventually, in the spring of 1944, Lomax decided enough was enough. He wasn't going to die here, in other words. He had become so starved and weakened that he recalled he could wrap his hand around his arm and that, quote, my stomach was very close to my spine, unquote, and that, quote, there seemed to be no solid body on me anywhere, unquote. Quite impressively, he was actually able to raise his pulse at will in an effort to make himself seem sicker, and as it turned out, it actually worked. He was moved to the sick ward and then able to convince them that he was, as he put it, quote, in a bad way, unquote, he was deemed unfit to serve his time in the prison. From there, he was finally shipped to the only place that, ironically given it was where they'd come from to begin with, was a place of relative freedom. He was returned to Changi, to the only nearby hospital deemed fit to handle people as quote-unquote sick as him. While Lomax wasn't doing great, to say the least, he was also clearly not nearly as sick as he made himself out to be. But he was dying in that prison and had no intention of going back there, which was where he would go back if he showed signs of recovery. Unfortunately, Lomax's good health was discovered by the doctors, and that prison, Outram Road, was exactly where he was sent back. But this time, he had a plan to leave. Inspired by a seemingly insane but completely understandable event of a comrade smashing his own foot with a pipe and hammer, Lomax began to memorize a number of stairs leading up to the first floor from the main hall, which he took every day while on latrine duty. When he figured out, as best as he could estimate, the required number of steps to be injured, but hopefully not fatally, he decided that the time was right for him to fling himself down a flight of stairs. The stairs were open-backed, so you can kind of visualize what that looks like. So it is reasonable to imagine that someone could naturally trip on them, but it definitely made a fake fall look much closer to a real one, if you could actually hook your foot in the right way. When he reached the appropriate spot one day, the 17th step as he recalls, Lomax stuck his foot right through the open back of the stairs and went tumbling down. Lomax recalls in his memoir, quote, The noise of crashing wood and metal in that huge silent gallery was frightful. I roared with pain and relief and sprawled out at the bottom mixed up in the heap, trying to look as contorted as I could. My spectacles survived even this and were still wetted to my nose. I was hurting, but I could not take the risk of checking how much damage had been done. Unquote. After being inspected, and crucially, after pretending to be essentially immobile for two weeks, the unthinkable happened. The Japanese transferred Eric Lomax right back to Changi. And he was among friends, welcomed back with a It's Lomax again! by a Scottish friend named Robert Reed, and possessing a newfound drive to remain in the safety of Changi until either freed or given a chance to escape. But there was a problem, and likely not one Lomax was expecting. It was April. The year was 1945. And the Nazis had just lost the war. And only months later, after, and I'm sorry, this is kind of funny, given the irony of it, 
after managing to sustain a real injury by accidentally spilling boiling hot salt sludge onto his leg, he discovered that a mysterious superweapon had been dropped by the Americans onto the Japanese city of Hiroshima, basically vaporizing it off of the map. And then it happened again over Nagasaki only days later. Strangely, but understandably, since you can't really just break up a routine because of news of a bombing, no matter how catastrophic, during wartime, the routine of medical inspections by Japanese military personnel continued until Japan's formal surrender six days later, after which the prisoners from Outram Road, where Lomax had escaped, were released to be held and treated at Changi until liberation. The POWs were finally free. And fed, after Allied bombers flew overhead and dropped packages full of food and medical supplies. And they were safe, with Allied troops parachuting in and holding the Japanese soldiers of Changi in custody. It was, for all intents and purposes, over. But Eric Lomax, free from captivity, was still a prisoner, whether he knew it or not. And he would remain a prisoner for decades to come. If you didn't already know, there's a film, correction, there's two films made about Eric Lomax's experience as a prisoner of the Japanese. There was one made for British TV called Prisoners of Time that I never saw, but I did see the more recent adaptation starring Colin Firth as Lomax. And there's a scene where Stellan Skarsgård, playing a fellow prisoner, portentously asks Lomax what happened in that room, referring to what happened when Lomax was taken away from the group of battered, beaten men in Conbury. We know what happened, thanks to both Nagase and Lomax's testimonies in their respective memoirs, but the scene in the film, and that line really on its own, along with the acting, it really helps illustrate the deep, deep, dark scars left behind by an experience like the one Lomax had. I have no idea if this actual conversation even took place, but that's rarely the point of a cinematic adaptation. It got the spirit of the trauma right. Even to a man who experienced much of the same horror that Lomax experienced, he couldn't bring himself to tell someone who would understand, much less his family and loved ones. Because, after returning home, it quickly became clear that what Lomax and the thousands and thousands of other men who had been held by the Japanese Empire and forced to build the Railway of Death experienced was something that they weren't just going to get over or live with, or cope with, at least not in any meaningful, healthy way without the help of others. This is made doubly tough when you have a family waiting for you, and Lomax did, though not as he recognized it. Because, if you may recall from earlier in our story, he remembered seeing his mother on the train platform looking distraught, and that being the last time he would ever see her, and you might remember how he doesn't give her name in his memoir, and how I said that that might play into what happened later in his life, which was essentially a tragedy. And that tragedy was, Lomax's mother had died while he was in captivity. She had died thinking her own son had died in the war. I can't, I can't even wrap my mind around that, either how she felt or how Lomax felt when he learned it. But... Regardless, feelings would come to be an issue in general for Lomax, not just toward his father, who had ultimately remarried a family friend, which is tough enough to cope with, but also toward the fiancé that Lomax had left behind. Because Lomax had indeed gotten engaged, 
shortly before being shipped off to Asia. He doesn't give her name, only referring to her as S, likely a way to keep her out of a story she may not have wanted told. But for some reason, in recent articles about Lomax's family, she's referred to as Nan. They might just mean grandmother, I'm not sure. I mean, that is the British term for grandma, but I don't know. Regardless, when Lomax was 21 and S was 19, they became engaged to wed when he returned from the war. Obviously, neither of them knew that this would be five years and a stunning psychological transformation in the making. The feelings described by Lomax at this part of his life, well, well, they're, they're thoroughly complicated, or maybe even informed by his experiences, and yet, they're all perfectly understandable. He considered his father's remarriage a betrayal, nearly impossible to forgive, and and he very astutely, likely thanks to his many years of therapy later in his life, pointed out that given what had happened to him both in Conbury and in the prison on Autram Road, everything back in the quote-unquote real world quickly started to seem cynical and petty, those were his words, and above all, pointless. He wanted to talk to his fiance about what he experienced, but she couldn't but she both didn't seem to have the ability to even listen to such horrible things, and he didn't have the ability to, as he puts it, quote, have the words to describe what I was going through, unquote. Continuing to describe how post-traumatic stress disorder, still at the time called battle fatigue or even shell shock by most of the world, describing how it was handled by the British Army after the war, Lomax writes, quote, The entire extent of my attention from the British Army after the war consisted of a brief medical examination at an army center in Edinburgh in November 1945. I could walk across the room, was warm to the touch, and had no incurable diseases, so they turned me loose. Get on with your life, the doctor seemed to say, as though it was the easiest thing in the world. The wounds were not on the surface, nor detectable by a stethoscope. Unquote. Later on, Lomax adds, quote, my experiences had put a huge distance between me and my previous life, yet I behaved, was expected to behave, as though I were the same person. In the legal and civil senses, I suppose I was, but that was about all. Here was Eric Lomax, playing the part of the newlywed, pretending he was what he had been in 1941, before he had left for the East, when his innocence and much of his emotional life had not been ripped out of him. Unquote. This was what S., Lomax's first wife, was facing when they got married shortly after his return. He admits in his memoir that it, that he, could not have been easy on her, mostly due to their inability to talk to one another in a normal, healthy way. He was typically cold, distant, and unable to be anything but silently obstinate. They managed to have a family together, and one of his daughters, Charmaine, gave an interview in 2013 after the release of the Colin Firth biopic that I mentioned earlier, remembering Lomax as a man whose, quote, feelings were locked inside himself, unquote, and that, quote, he was there physically, but emotionally he was 100% absent, unquote. Charmaine's mother told her that as she rubbed ointments into Lomax's infected back, he had gotten ringworm and eczema in the jungles, when she was doing that, she had asked him what had happened to him and how he'd coldly responded that he wasn't going to talk about it and that she should never ask him again. Lomax himself claimed in his memoir that whenever he tried to talk about it, S. would simply change the subject. The question of which account of the relationship is true is actually kind of irrelevant 
to the purposes of our story, at least, and even to the reality of Lomax's experiences and what was going on within his head. The point is, regardless of which account is true, he was traumatized. Deeply, deeply traumatized. And the first people affected by your trauma, like it or not, are those who are closest to you. It's true that post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't need to be connected to wartime experiences to be accurately diagnosed, though it's certainly the most common diagnosis of troops returning from the battlefield. PTSD, battle fatigue, shell shock, is common among survivors of many traumatic events, not just war and genocide, but near-death experiences, sexual assaults, spousal and parental abuse, or even recovery from a particularly difficult disease or health condition. While, as usual, numbers don't really tell the tale about PTSD, let alone anything, to give you an idea how common the disorder is, though, the United States Department of Veteran Affairs estimates that around 8 million adults experience post-traumatic stress disorder in a given year, and 7-8% to of the population will have PTSD at least at one point in their lives. That is over 26 million people. And I'm certain we all know some of them. It's a hell of a thing to live with. As I understand it, if you suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, it's basically like a nightmare sneaking up behind you, ready to strike at any time whether you're awake or asleep. It can include every symptom experienced by people suffering from major depression and generalized anxiety and panic disorder, all accompanied by intrusive memories and literal flashbacks, sometimes triggered, sometimes not. That word, by the way, triggered, I, I swear, thanks to politics and this stupid internet culture war we find ourselves in, has rendered the term's usefulness into like a, a fine powder at best. But someone suffering from diagnosed PTSD does indeed have triggers for their trauma, sometimes completely unrelated to the trauma itself, like a, a look from a cashier, a jerk flashing his or her high beams at you, a window slamming shut. It all depends on the person. It's a constant struggle that can be managed with therapy and medication and a good support network. But obviously, that can be easier said than done, especially considering the amount of suicides that result from such an evil disorder. One of the most common symptoms of PTSD is nightmares and night terrors. I mentioned that PTSD is like a nightmare, always creeping along behind you waiting to strike, the reason why nightmares and especially night terrors are so common with people who are diagnosed with PTSD is that when you're sleeping, your mind is essentially defenseless. When you're sleeping, you're essentially allowing your brain's conscious defense mechanisms to take a break. And this was something, along with the emotional coldness and a hair-trigger temper that led to the coldness, that Eric Lomax experienced for decades following his return to England. He describes his nightmares as follows, quote, The nightmares were usually about Outram Road. I would be left in a cell on my own, with no food or water, starving and suffocating and crying out for release, and in the dream's compression of time, months would pass while I was ignored, and I knew I was never going to be released. Or I would be doing something perfectly innocent, and would suddenly find myself back in Outram Road, the victim of some arbitrary justice, this time with no prospect of ever getting out again, because there was no reason for me to be there. At other times, I would fall endlessly and painfully down the iron staircase covered in disgusting sores. They were all the same dream. Unquote. 
He later describes how the nightmares continued to get worse. Quote, I did not think I was any different from anyone else, despite my terrible nightmares, which I refused to acknowledge as a problem. I wanted to believe that it had all been buried, yet Outram Road kept coming back, night after night. Silence, disease, hunger, fear, above all the intensity of the uncertainty and fear. I would cry out at night, wake up sweating as though I had run up a hill with a heavy load, and shake with relief when I found myself in the damp heat of the cold Edinburgh night. Unquote. Lomax would be chased by this demon of a condition for the rest of his life, and it would indeed take its toll, both on him and indeed in those in his life. By the time the 1980s rolled around, his marriage had completely dissolved into cold silences and emotional distance, like his daughter described in that interview I quoted from earlier. But it wasn't just him turning his back on his family emotionally. An intolerance over things that Lomax describes as, quote, surpassingly trivial, unquote, became something so severe that he essentially had no tolerance for anything that couldn't, quote-unquote, compare to his suffering. You know, why the hell should I care about this person's feelings about this particular thing when it's clearly so pointless and trivial in the face of existential horror that I live with every day? That kind of thing. This is one of those darker impulses of mood disorders that I'm very impressed that Lomax, a man of the greatest generation by the way, known for its stoicism and seemingly endless lack of introspection, the latter of which they tended to pass on to the boomers, no offense, guys. I'm just very impressed that Lomax managed to uncover this kind of introspection, this kind of self-evaluation, this ability to self-evaluate within himself, and especially admit that process and describe it so publicly, though the therapy he would eventually undergo no doubt helped him with that. It's still just very impressive to me. But seriously, though, this is something that many of us, myself included, have a hard time admitting. That even though depression, anxiety, distress, horror are all terrible, hellish things, truly hellish things, that there's a certain, I don't know how else to describe it, other than a momentary sense of superiority over those who aren't experiencing the pain that you're experiencing you couldn't possibly understand can feel pretty satisfying to say or at least think. It's like you're in a secret club and the normies who never invited you to their parties are now not invited to yours. That kind of thing. And you can hold that over them. And while this might seem disturbing, like disturbingly petty and childish, and it is, don't get me wrong, it is very petty and disturbing and childish, but it's a very common self-defense mechanism. It's emotional armor against the outside world. And while I'm speaking candidly about myself here, the scariest, most challenging thing for someone with mental illness, whether it's PTSD or depression or anxiety, sometimes isn't actually your own mind. The scariest thing sometimes isn't actually your own mind. It's the outside world. Because when you have to focus on the outside world, you know, social situations, your job, your family, when you have to focus on these things, you don't have the luxury or ability to protect yourself from the demons that are lurking within you. As Lomax himself says in his memoirs, quote, I found it difficult to tolerate gray areas in my life, 
to accept ambiguity or uncertainty of any kind, and I could not easily forgive the mistakes of others, what is euphemistically called not suffering fools gladly. Trifles bothered me, or perhaps it is truer to say I could not be bothered with them, and I would find ways of procrastinating over all the small irritations with which life bombards us. I found bills, circulars, and especially demands for personal information more or less unbearable. Unquote. And perhaps, most introspectively of all, Lomax continues later, quote, When confrontation came, I would resist with immense stubborn energy, revenging myself on the Kempatai and the guards in every encounter. Although I could not have admitted it, I was still fighting the war in all those years of peace. Unquote. All of this was not only at the core of why Lomax's marriage came to an end in 1981, but also why, whenever he did manage to talk about the war with anyone, he only spoke of the Japanese, about whom he always recalled saying that he, quote, hated them with absolute totality, unquote. In 1982, after his marriage had fallen apart and he had finally retired from his position, he'd been working both for the Scottish Gas Board and then for Strathclyde University, Lomax would reunite with fellow Railway of Death POWs Alex Morton McKay, one of the men who was beaten before Lomax was, and Fred Smith, who he shared a cell with. He met them for lunch in London. Over lunch, they became animated in their discussions about the Japanese who had brutalized them. As Lomax himself says, after this conversation, it became an obsession for him. Because while several of the commanding officers on the Burma-Siam Railway Project had indeed been caught, tried, and even executed, none of the men from the Conbury prison camp that had tortured Lomax or his comrades had ever been identified, let alone punished, at least as far as any of them knew. And this uncertainty only made Lomax's obsession grow. As he recalls in his memoirs, quote, I admit that I wanted to make them pay pay more than they had already done. The more I thought about it, and thought about it, the more I wished to do damage to the Kempatai men if I could ever find them. Physical revenge seemed the only adequate recompense for the anger I carried. I thought often about the young interpreter at Conbury. There was no single dominant figure at Outram Road on whom I could focus my general hatred, but because of his command of my language, the interpreter was my link. He was center stage in my memories. He was my private obsession. His slurred and struggling English, his endless questions, his repetitiveness, the way he gave voice to the big torturing NCO, he represented all of them. He stood in for all the worst horrors. Unquote. Eric Lomax, living through decades of trauma and horror, had finally found his outlet, his target. But then something slowed his search. He fell in love. He actually had met Patty Lomax, as she would come to be named after they got married. He had met her a few years earlier, while they were both still married and both unhappy. 
But for some reason, Patty had made an impression on him when they met on a train headed to Glasgow. Before long, they became involved together and eventually did get married. This isn't to say that he suddenly got better and the post-traumatic stress disappeared with his newfound happiness. As Lomax himself admits, quote, Patty had to suffer the sudden icy rages, the withdrawals of affection and contact of a man who could not stand being teased even lovingly. Unquote. His world was, as he put it, quote, still printed in black and white, unquote, and it was, again, affecting someone he loved. Except this time, Patty refused to be cowed by the circumstances. According to Lomax, being of a younger generation, she was 17 years his junior, she was more acutely aware of the effects suffered by veterans of wars, likely especially with more visible conflicts like the Vietnam War and all the films dealing directly with the realities of PTSD having already happened at this point. The Deer Hunter was, you know, at least five years old at this point, for example. This was why she was able to intuit that Lomax's problems, with emotion at least, likely stemmed from his experiences during the Second World War, which he was still not talking about in the slightest. This prompted her to talk with him and convince him to seek out psychiatric treatment for Lomax, which, believe it or not, was still not all that common in the 1980s. But when he found out about a new organization called the Medical Foundation for the Care of Victims of Torture, headed by a woman named Helen Bamber, he immediately visited them, and he became their very first patient. And the healing process began in 1987 and will continue for years to come. However, even with the healing process underway, Lomax was still filled with one thing that he never was able to fully quite shake, and that was hate. Hate for the Japanese, but specifically hate for Nagase. Remember, he stood in for the Japanese. He stood in for Lomax's suffering, and Lomax hated his suffering and those who caused it. So the obsession remained, because a few years after meeting his former comrades and discussing the possibility of revenge, he had discovered who Nagase was. He had started his quest for revenge by penning a piece in a newspaper specifically published for XPOWs in early 1985, asking for any information on the quote-unquote American-sounding Japanese interpreter at Kanbury. While nothing had turned up right away, he was eventually contacted by a man named Henry Cecil Babb, who had served as an army chaplain on the railway, and who did recall that an interpreter, having seen him in August 1945 right at war's end, and, more importantly, having been recently contacted by the interpreter. After writing to him, he told Lomax what Lomax wanted to know more than anything. The name of Takashi Nagase. He learned more than Nagase's name. He learned that Nagase had become active in charities at his former posting, apparently trying to atone for the crimes of his country. But Lomax wasn't convinced, or as he put it, he felt quote-unquote cold skepticism, and still, quote, found the very thought of him distasteful, unquote. And why wouldn't he? The Japanese had, to put it mildly, treated him and his countrymen like dirt under their shoes. This was deflection as far as Lomax was concerned. There was nothing sincere about Nagase, nothing to suggest that any desire for reconciliation was even remotely sincere, or anything other than a pathetic attempt at self-preservation or even flat-out exploitation. Throughout the 1980s and into the 1990s, Lomax would continue to gather information on Nagase. 
He was given a clipping from the Japan Times in 1989 that described how Nagase had helped find the Allies' dead soldiers littering the railway of death and how he'd been, quote, making up for the Japanese army's treatment of prisoners of war, unquote. But along with this article, there was also a picture of him, now an old man like Lomax. And Lomax, upon seeing the picture, knew this was his target. Quote, His face was recognizably the face of the interrogator, his sunken cheekbones and eyes and mouth, an older edition of that serious young man's features. Unquote. Lomax describes a flicker in his emotions, of doubt specifically, upon seeing Nagase's claims of doing what he could to make up for the suffering of the men imprisoned on that railway. But Lomax was still gripped with the desire for revenge. And something new that he hadn't felt for most of his life. As Lomax recalls, quote, I had apparently found one of the men I was looking for, and I had the near certainty, shadowed only by a tiny cloud of doubt, that I knew who he was and where he was. I was in such a strong position. I could, if I wished, reach out and touch him, to do him real harm. The years of feeling powerless whenever I thought of him and his colleagues were erased. Even now, given the information about what he had done since the war, and my own changing feelings about revenge, the old feelings came to the surface, and I wanted to damage him for his part in ruining my life. Unquote. Eric Lomax may have experienced doubt, but now he knew what he was going to do. Lomax had actually learned of Nagase's memoir, Crosses and Tigers, that I was quoting from earlier, and read it for himself in 1991. Needless to say, it shook him to the core, especially when he read the parts that I quoted earlier talking about him. But when Patty found the book and read it herself, she became more angry than anything. This is an understandable reaction of anyone partnered with someone who is going through what Lomax was going through, blinding anger at the seeming cause of the trauma and pain they're feeling. But she clearly had an inkling of what her husband's plan was, at least when they took the flight to Thailand in 1993 so he could finally meet his captor. Correspondence leading to this encounter began with Patty writing to Takashi Nagase herself in late October of 1991 with Lomax's permission. Saying that her husband would very much like to meet Nagase, she asked if it would be all right to continue corresponding, but with Lomax instead of her. Nagase agreed. Then the correspondence began, and within less than two years, a flight to Thailand was arranged, with Lomax seemingly eager to meet Nagase. Eager enough to make Patty realize something wasn't quite right. According to Patty herself in an interview she gave in December of 2013, quote, I began to suspect it wasn't quite all it seemed on Eric's part, and I was right. He agreed to meet Mr. Nagase, but admitted later his motive was to kill him. Unquote. According to Patty, even while they sat on the international flight that was to take them to Bangkok in 1993, the images running through Eric Lomax's mind involved him, Nagase, and a garrot wire encircling Nagase's throat, choking the life out of him. After spending a couple of days taking in the sights of modern-day Bangkok, the day arrived. A meeting had been arranged on a veranda overlooking the famous bridge on the River Kwai, an architectural embodiment of Lomax's torture, of his suffering, and of his imprisonment. He describes in his memoir the oppressive heat, despite it being only nine in the morning. The air was likely heavy, 
literally with humidity, figuratively with what was about to happen. And then Nagase appeared. Lomax describes the moments that followed, which I want to quote at length. Quote, From about 100 yards away, I saw him walk out onto the bridge. He could not see me. It was important for me to have this last momentary advantage over him. Unquote. A little later on, Lomax continues, quote, I had forgotten how small he was. A tiny man in an elegant straw hat, loose kimono-like jacket, and trousers. From a distance, he resembled an oriental carving, some benign, wizened demon come to life. He carried a shapeless blue cotton shoulder bag. As he came closer, I saw he wore around his throat beads of dark red stone on a thick string. I remembered him saying to me again and again, Lomax, you will tell us. Other phrases he had recited in the voice I hated so much. Unquote. Nagase would bow. Lomax would say a greeting in Japanese. And then, quote, He looked up at me. He was trembling, in tears, saying over and over, I am very, very sorry. I somehow took command led him out of the terrible heat to a bench in the shade. I was comforting him, for he was really overcome. At that moment, my capacity for reserve and self-control helped me to help him, murmuring reassurances as we sat down. It was as though I was protecting him from the very force of the emotions shaking his frail-seeming body. I think I said something like, "'That's very kind of you to say so,' to his repeated expressions of sorrow." Unquote. And then they talked. They talked and reminisced. And, funny enough, there was actually a camera crew that hurried to catch the moment they had when Lomax led Nagase to the bench where they sat. This might seem crazy, given how I set this up, the idea that Lomax was planning to kill Nagase even with a camera crew following him. The BBC wanted to make this documentary about this because it had become more known. And it is kind of crazy if you're only going by Lomax's word. According to Lomax earlier in his memoir, as he read Nagase's own memoir, Lomax felt the grief expressed through Nagase's words and the hate, all the hate he'd carried for decades, seeming to melt away. There was a coldness there, a very understandable and foreboding coldness. But Lomax recalls in his memoir when the time came for him to return to Thailand, he was, quote, ready to face my old enemy eagerly and in good heart, unquote. This might sound harsh, but there's really no delicate way to put it. This was more than likely a lie. A lie Lomax told in his own memoir to make him seem less... I was going to say petty or cruel, but honestly, I'm just going to go with human. I'm basing this purely off of Patty Lomax's testimony later in her life. But why would she lie about something like that? something that placed the man she loved and who had just died in 2013 in such a negative light if it wasn't true. Feel free to take her testimony with a grain of salt, but I suspect that Lomax wanted to believe he was ready to forgive Nagase long before he saw him. And maybe part of him did. But I also think he was leaving the door open, the possibility open, of killing the man who he saw as facilitating his suffering the suffering that imprisoned him for all those years, even if there was a BBC camera crew following him. Because 
Like I alluded to earlier in our story, Eric Lomax may have been liberated in 1945, but he remained a prisoner of his experiences, of his hatred. He remained a prisoner year after year, decade after decade, until that moment, standing on the River Kwai, when instead of taking his revenge, he watched the man on whom he'd placed responsibility for his eternal imprisonment and allowed his hate to truly disappear. Lomax and Nagase, along with their wives, would spend several days together in Thailand, being shown the sights, paying their respects at the Chung Kai War Memorial, and coming to understand each other. Lomax would come to learn of their shared interests, books, history, teaching, and would still have trouble explaining to Nagase what the hell his mania in trains was all about. As part of the planned itinerary, the itinerary Lomax had forgotten all about in his plan to kill Nagase, they traveled to Japan so Lomax could be exposed to the culture of his old enemy. He describes the wonder with which he experienced the country, and he even remembers a time in which he and Nagase, along with their wives, visited Hiroshima. And while Patty was with Nagase's wife Yoshiko and some of Nagase's friends, they all suddenly heard this outburst of laughter. They all turned, and they saw Lomax and Nagase laughing together. Lomax couldn't even recall what had made them laugh. There are a couple of quotes that I think some of you may know, and are really just quotes that I like regarding the central theme of this epic story we've just gone through. The first one you have is from good old Mahatma Gandhi, in which he said, quote, the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. Unquote. Then we have Nelson Mandela with his really clever, little less literal take. Quote, Resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. Unquote. Though I think my personal favorite has to be Oscar Wilde's more pragmatic, we'll say, approach to forgiveness. Quote, Always forgive your enemies. Nothing annoys them so much. Unquote. These quotes all have their own salience, from Gandhi appealing to strength, Mandela appealing to reason, and Wilde appealing to, as always, wit. But this isn't really a podcast about those things. I mean, I'd like to think I'm a strong, reasonable, witty guy, but I'm not telling stories strictly about strength, reason, or wit. This is a history podcast with... Nice bits of psychology and philosophy thrown in for good measure. So we look at things from a historical perspective, as well as from a psychological, philosophical perspective when applicable. That's why I think it's valuable to look at what Hannah Arendt, one of the greatest writers and witnesses to history in the 20th century, had to say about this very subject we've been exploring with our story. As part of one of her writings in 1958, fittingly called The Human Condition, she would write the following, quote, Without being forgiven, released from the consequences of what we have done, our capacity to act would, as it were, be confined to one single deed from which we could never recover. We would remain the victims of its consequences forever, not unlike the sorcerer's apprentice who lacked the formula to break the spell. Unquote. The virtues of forgiveness are so common, or at least commonly known, that, well, really, they're pretty much a cliche at this point. 
But this virtue of forgiveness is, by its very nature, difficult to look at with anything but cynicism, especially today, and especially for those of us on the internet. The tiniest verbal infraction gets you canceled. A wrong joke here, a misplaced criticism there, a bit of ignorance right here. A celebrity slips up, says something dumb on a talk show, then prostrates herself for the online mob only to have a good portion of that mob just smirk with smug judgment of her attempts to atone. A writer-director in Hollywood has a Twitter history full of offensive jokes and is called out on them, after which he proclaims how he's learned and grown since he posted those way back in the supposed Wild West days of Twitter in 2009. Same song, second verse. What a man, baby. He needs to learn consequences, all that usual BS. Me going full current events on this isn't really to pass too much judgment on internet mobs. Obviously, I'm no fan, but I suspect they're a permanent fixture. And really, my opinion on them doesn't matter because it isn't the point I'm trying to make. The point is that the idea of forgiveness, at least in the internet age, and with things that ostensibly should be pretty easy to forgive, seems pretty much trite in the modern era. The point is that it's easy to feel like forgiveness is in short supply. Reading all of the stories I referenced at the beginning of the episode, the story of Kim Fook, the story of the Amish community of Nickel Mines, the story of Amy Beale's parents, the story of Ava Moses Kaur, and the story of Brant Jean. Reading all those stories, but particularly everything about the story of Eric Lomax and Takashi Nagase, has planted a particularly difficult thought in my mind that I really haven't been able to shake. That perhaps forgiveness is not only difficult, possibly the most difficult thing anyone can ever truly sincerely do, but that forgiveness is also only possible, or at least meaningful, when truly faced with horror, with torment, with desolation. Otherwise, where is the incentive to try and forgive? Someone says something mean to you on Facebook or Twitter or hell, even in person. They're rude, they're a jerk, whatever. You have pride, why forgive them? What do you have to lose? And if you do forgive these people, who cares? You're both still here, and nothing in the world has really changed. But what about when your Amish community has faced the horror of seeing five of its girls, five sisters, daughters, granddaughters, massacred by a crazed lone gunman? What about when you learn that your daughter, far from her home and family, was pulled from her car by a mob of angry South African men who stabbed and beat her to death? What about when you've survived the complete devastation of your village by American bombs filled with napalm, napalm that mutilated your flesh and essentially melted and incinerated your friends and family? What about when you and your only sister were poked, prodded, and experimented upon by a psychopathic monster and his flunkies who simply stood guard as your fellow Jews clawed the stone walls of the gas chamber? What if your brother or son was murdered by someone whose job supposedly it was to protect them in his own apartment? What about when you're strapped to a board at a moderate to steep incline, beaten, and have water being slowly poured into your nostrils and mouth through three layers of cloth until you almost choke to death, only to have it done to you again, all while being told, you will tell us Lomax? The horror faced in these situations like these breaks everyone and anyone. And if you've survived by the time it's over, all you have is that horror, 
eating away at you, grasping hold of you in any way it can imagine. Whether it's waking up every night in a cold sweat from the nightmares that never end, writhing on the floor of your bathroom in unending despair, or simply the voice inside your skull telling you to put a bullet through your brain and end it all, this horror can't and won't let go. Some, many really, will seek out the cause or closest proxy to that cause and try to find catharsis in destroying that cause. And maybe that works for them. I'm not here to say revenge doesn't work. However, it seems to me that the power of forgiveness has shown itself to be effective, true, graceful, and even beautiful, especially and possibly only when it's necessitated by these horrors. We hear a lot about hate, whether it's the hate that fills our history books or the hate that fills our headlines or the hate that fills our Facebook newsfeed. It's hard to imagine that our species doesn't thrive, at least in part, on hate. It moves us to act. Intolerance of intolerance. Hatred of hate, right? That is how we defeat evil in the world. And maybe, sometimes, that is true. Why should we tolerate anyone who dismisses the tragedy of a black woman losing her only son to a vigilante gunman? Why should we tolerate anyone who pushes any sort of toxic belief system, much less... Anyone who is complicit or takes part in something as evil and nefarious as the systematic torture of another human being, robbing them of their flesh and agency. I mean, we know what Gandhi or Nelson Mandela or Oscar Wilde or Hannah Arendt would say about forgiveness. But what about what Eric Lomax had to say? He comes to a very simple conclusion with the closing lines of his reflections. Quote, If I'd never been able to put a name to the face of one of the men who had harmed me and never discovered that behind that face there was also a damaged life, the nightmares would always have come from a past without meaning. And I had proved for myself that remembering is not enough if it simply hardens hate. Back in Thailand, at the Chiang Kai War Cemetery, when Patty and I walked off on her own, she had a moment of doubt as she looked at the rows and rows of graves and wondered whether we were doing the right thing after all. It was only a moment, for we both knew we should be there. I said then, sometime the hating has to stop. Once a jolly swag man camped by a billabong Under the shade of a cool tree and he sang and he watched and he waited till his billy boiled. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. Waltzing Matilda, waltzing Matilda. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. And he sang and he watched and he waited till his billy boiled. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. Down came a jumbuck to drink at the billabong. Up jumped the swagman and grabbed him with glee. And he sang and he shoved that jumbuck in his tugger bag. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. Waltzing Matilda, waltzing Matilda. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. 
And he sang and he shoved that jump buck in his tucker bag. You'll come a waltzing, Matilda, with me. Up rode the squatter, mounted on his thoroughbred. Down came the troopers, one, two, three. Where's that jolly jump buck that you've got in your tucker bag? You'll come a waltzing, Matilda, with me. Waltzing Matilda, waltzing Matilda, you'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. Where's that jolly jump buck you got in your tucker bag? You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. Up jumped the swagman and sprang into that billabong. You'll never catch me alive, said he. And his ghost may be heard as you pass by that billabong. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. Waltzing Matilda, waltzing Matilda. You'll come a waltzing Matilda with me. And his ghost may be heard as you pass by that billabong. You'll come waltzing Matilda with me. May I touch your hand? Oh, yes. Yeah. No, no, I mean, when you are tortured, you know, oh. being tortured, I measured your past. Yes. And uh, yes. you are part of it is very smooth, yes. so I am very well, much relaxed. You see, these are, the, these are where the broken bones are. Mm. Yeah. Yes, I remember. Yes. Mm. Very sorry. Yeah. Very sorry for you. Well, we've, uh, we both survived. As a member of the Japanese army, we treated your countrymen very, very badly and against the humanity. Yes. I realized that. Yes. So when I repatriated from out here to country, yeah. And uh, I got uh, various uh, sufferings yeah. in my yeah. heart and mind. Yeah. But I tried. And whenever I think of you, yeah. why you are born in this world? <laughs> what purpose? Yeah. For what purpose it's you are born? It's a difficult question mm. to answer. Yes. I'm very, very sorry. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I think I can die safely. History Impossible has been made possible by the generous contributions of the folks over on Patreon, specifically at the $10 level and higher. I want to thank personally Trevor Lindborg, Molly Pan, PJ Raider, Emily Schmidt, and Jake Smith. Your support helps make History Impossible continue. Thank you so much.